Hello, I'm Jacob Kruger, and this is the Write Your Screenplay podcast. This week is a replay of our Pitch Festivus event. We do this event every year. We get together lots of members of Jacob Kruger Studio faculty. We had five faculty members here this year. We have 10 incredible pitches from student filmmakers that you will get to listen to. And you are going to learn so much about pitching, not only from the lectures of these incredible faculty members, but also from the feedback that we were able to give to these incredible student filmmakers. So stay tuned and enjoy. So now I get to talk about pitching. Um, I get to talk about my, my one of my favorite things to do. And I love to talk about this because the, there was a time when pitching was not my favorite thing to do. Um, there was a time when I had terrible social anxiety and I was afraid to even talk to someone, much less pitch something that mattered to me. Um, so uh, I'm excited to talk to you about this because I would <laughs> I would pitch I would pitch all day every day now. And what that means is that even if you're terrified of pitching, it means that there are skills that you can develop, even if you're an introvert, um, even if you don't like selling, even if you don't like talking about yourself, there are skills that you can develop that will allow you to succeed in pitching and to even enjoy it. Um, and I want to start today by talking about some of those skills so that um, so that you can bring that to this event if you get selected to pitch. And please throw your name in the hat to pitch. You will never get as supportive of an environment to pitch as the one that you just entered. Um, you will never have an opportunity where you can learn so much around people who literally just want to help you. Um, and so even if you think your pitch sucks, raise your hand or uh, su submit your pitch. Even if you're terrified of pitching, even if you're not ready, submit your pitch. And you even have a chance to win some awesome prizes. Um, we're giving away a free pitch consultation with me. It's worth $1,500. Um, well, the second place person will get two months in my master class. And the third place person will get a, a, a free foundation class. So we, we've got some awesome prizes. We also have stay till the end because we have a prize for all of you. Um, so it's going to be a good time. All right. So what's the first thing I want you to remember about pitching? Pitching is personal. All pitching is personal. Pitching is relational, right? Pitching is about building relationships with people. Um, and what that means is the biggest mistake you can make when you're pitching is to read your pitch, is to have it written down. And the second biggest mistake you can make is to memorize it. If you read your pitch and you memorize your pitch, you are actually sending a couple of unconscious signals to the person that you are pitching that you don't want to send. The first message you're sending is you're not special, right? You're saying you're, you're visually showing them I'm doing the same thing for you that I'm doing for everybody else. You're not special, right? I'm just here trying to sell you something. And when I leave here, I'm going to read this same pitch to somebody else and somebody else and somebody else. Now, the person's not consciously thinking that. 
but that's the subconscious message that you're sending the person. So the first thing I want you to know is uh, don't read your pitch. If you came here planning to read your pitch, don't worry. You know your pitch better than anybody in the world. And that's the second subconscious message that you're inadvertently sending when you read a pitch or when you memorize a pitch. You are subconsciously sending the message that I don't know what I'm doing. Right? If you wrote a screenplay, the truth is, you know that screenplay inside out. You just did. If you wrote a screenplay, you've already done like the hardest thing in the world. Right? And if you've written a good screenplay, you've done the hardest version of the hardest thing in the world. And that means you are the world's authority on your pitch. There is literally nobody who knows your pitch better than you because there is nobody who knows your project better than you. So if you read something memorized or if, you, if, you're, if you've written something down, you're sending the message that you don't actually know your script well enough to pitch it off book, right? To just talk about it. Uh, and you know that that's not true because the truth is you talk about things you're experts in or that you're geeks about all the time with your friends, right? Like um, I'm spending my, my winter skiing, right? When I, when somebody asked me like, oh, how's Breckenridge, right? I don't have to like pull up a cheat sheet to be like, well, let me tell you the great thing about snow, right? I, I know about skiing because I'm skiing, right? Because I'm actually doing it. Um, and I can talk from the, uh, from the heart and I can talk about what's cool about it for me. And what that does is it makes the person feel like I'm not doing this weird sales pitch thing. I'm just having a conversation, which is, the third reason you don't want to read or memorize your pitch. Because you want your pitch to feel like a conversation. You want your pitch to feel like a connection. You want your pitch to feel like a real interchange of ideas. The truth is you're probably not that experienced in pitching unless you happen to be a salesperson. If you're not already a salesperson, then the truth is you're used to having conversations. So what I want to suggest to you is make your pitch a conversation. One of the ways that you do that, you want to read the eyes of the person you're pitching, which is really hard to do if you're staring at your iPad, right? Um, if you're pitching in a big group like this, pick a set of eyes that you like. Pick a set of warm eyes. Pick a set of eyes that feel supportive and look at that person. Read their eyes because you're getting so many signals from the just the eye contact of the person that you're pitching. And when you're able to take in those sig signals, it's going to allow you to act more like a real human being who is likable rather than someone trying to jam a pitch down somebody's throat and make them buy it. Does that resonate with everybody? Does that make sense to you all? Okay, great. So, so this is what we want to do. We want our pitching to be personal. Now, in what we're about to do right now is fake, okay? What we're about to do right now is as close as we can get to a real pitch in a group of 200 people, um, but it's fake, 
right? There is no such thing as a three-minute pitch, right? No one's going to play you out in the real world when you're pitching, right? Even if you're stuck in the elevator with Martin Scorsese, if he likes what you're saying, he's not going to cut you off at the end. And really, if you're in a room with an executive or at a party with an executive, you know, I got to write a script with the guys who wrote Les Miserables, the composers of Les Miserables, right? In my 20s. That's insane. You know how that happened? I was having a conversation. I was at a party. I was having a conversation with somebody and I was just talking to him. And he was sharing with me that his brother had died. And he was in real grief about it. And I happened to be working on a story that I thought was going to make him feel better. So I told him the story to make him feel better. I didn't know that he was Alain Bublé and Claude Michel Schoenberg's agent. Uh, and that opened up this amazing door. So I want you to know that when you're pitching somebody, right, you want to be pitching all the time. And, and if you're afraid that somebody's going to steal your script, I just want you to think again about how hard it was to write your script. I want you to think again about the millions of choices you had to make in order to actually write your script. And then I want you to practice a little bit of Zen and go, hey, if somebody can take a three minute pitch and do a better job on my screenplay than I can, then they probably deserve it. Um, but the truth is nobody can steal your script because even if they took your idea, by the time it's passed through them, it's gonna be a completely different movie or a completely different show. So you wanna be talking about your script all the time. And there are two reasons you wanna be doing that. The first and most important reason is you never know who is Alain Bublil and Claude Michel Schoenberg's agent. You never know who actually is going to help you. And sometimes it's not the person that you think that's gonna help you. The second reason you wanna be pitching your script all the time is most connections are not made by famous industry people. It's often, it's your dry cleaner, it's your dentist, it's somebody you met at a party who happens to know somebody who happens to know somebody who happens to know somebody who actually makes the introduction to the person you need to get to. And the third reason is the more you pitch your script, the more comfortable you're going to get pitching your script, right? The less scary and high stakes it's going to be if you talk about your script all the time to lots of different people and you're reading their eyes, and you notice when they get bored. And when they get bored, you shift something up. And you notice when they're interested, and when they're interested, you go a little bit deeper. If you learn how to do that, if you learn how to pitch your script 50 different ways, then when you finally end up in a room with the executive you've been dying to get to, you're not so nervous you're having the conversation you've had a hundred times and you're flexible, right? You can, you can adapt. You can go, oh, when I pitch an Adam, I always pitch it like this, but when I pitch an, a Mary Blackford, I always pitch it like that, right? You can read the room and go, oh, I got to do this version just based on the energy, right? So you want to be adaptable. You want your pitch to be able to, sh to shift and shape Right. If they're bored, you want to bring it to a close. If they're if they're fascinated, you want to drill deeper. The next thing I want you to think when you're pitching. 
you are not selling. If you try to sell, you are going to act weird. And the other person that you're pitching is going to put up a defensive wall, right? Because nobody likes the feeling of being sold. You don't even like the feeling of being sold when it's something you want to sell, right? Or something you want to buy. Nobody likes pressure, right? So rather than thinking about your pitch as a way to sell, I want you to think about your pitch as a way to find your people. Your pitch is a way to find your people. So as you're pitching, what you really know, you're not going like, do they like me? Are they going to buy it? What you're actually doing is, let's say you're pitching Barry. You're going, do I dig Barry? Does Barry dig me? Would we want to hang out? Right? Would I want to spend a couple years working with Barry? Right? Because if I don't, right, then I'm pretty foolish to sell my script to him because I'm he's the person I'm gonna have to be working with. I like to think that my pitch is a way of helping somebody. Because I'm really good at helping somebody and I, I don't like pressuring people, but I'm really good at helping people. And the way I think about it is if I've actually done the work to make my script beautiful, right? To actually make my script something that could be made and that people would enjoy and that takes them on a journey. If I actually do that, then I have something that everybody in the world desperately needs because there are so few scripts that actually do that successfully. Now, the question is, let's say I'm pitching Barry, does Barry need my script or does Barry need some different script? Because if I can't help Barry, then maybe I should introduce him to Tammy. Maybe she has a script that he loves, right? Um, I want to put myself in a role of helping, 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 giving, 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 right? Because people like people who help them and they want to help back. So how do you find out? Well, the first thing you should do when you walk into a pitch meeting is not start pitching. If you're pitching a real executive, agent, manager, or even if you're at a party just talking to something, somebody, don't go, oh, I'm going to pitch my script. Go, what are you into? What are you looking for? What are you working on? What came out recently that you wish you made? You want to ask those questions. And you want to give them room to talk. Because if you do that, you might realize, wow, I should actually pitch a different project. Or you might realize, wow, I do not have the script for you. Or you might realize, man, I don't even like this person's taste, right? This is not my person, right? Um, so in which case, maybe you can help get them in touch with somebody that you know who writes the kind of stuff they would like. So. I want you to think if you're really in a real pitch, the more you're talking, the worse job you're doing. In a real pitch, you want to know where they are, what they're looking for. You want them talking and you don't start opening your mouth until you know you have exactly the right thing for them. And if you don't have exactly the right thing for them, there are two things you can do. The first thing, if you've been practicing pitching a lot, is you can make one up. This was one of my favorite things to do at the end of my career. Um, I would just go into an executive's office and I'd go, what are you looking for? And they'd tell me. 
And then I'd say, you know, I have something similar in development. It's in the very, very early stages. But how about I pitch it to you and see if, if you connect? And I would just make up a pitch. I'd basically say back to them whatever they said to me. And invariably, they'd be like, yeah, I'd want to read that. And I'd say, okay, great. Let me put together a one-pager for you, right? And now I'm sending them a page. And now maybe I have some investment in that script and I have a connection. If you're not one of those kind of people, um, uh, at the end of my career, Dylan, um, I am primarily a teacher now. Um, I, uh, for, I had success very, very young. I had success in my early 20s. And I was primarily a writer through my early 30s. Um, but now I'm primarily a teacher. So when I say towards the end of my career, what I mean is I still write and I still pitch things from time to time, but it's not the focus of what I do. The focus of what I do now is giving back. Um, so here's what we're talking about, right? We're talking about um, if you know what to pitch, pitch it. If you don't have the right thing, you can make it up. If you're not a make it up kind of person, then I want you to say something like this. Boy, Barry, I do not have the right project for you. But I could really use some mentorship. Could I bend your ear for five minutes, tell you a little bit my, about my project, and maybe you can give me some advice about how to get to the right person? Now, do you see what I just did? Right? I took all the pressure off of Barry. Barry doesn't have to decide if he likes my script or not. Barry doesn't have to worry about being sold. Barry just gets to play the role of a mentor, which is a role that everybody in the world likes, right? Because it doesn't cost you much. And it's a lot of fun and it makes you feel great about yourself. And now I'm going to build a relationship with Barry that might last my whole career. I might say something like, okay, Barry, look, I know it's not for you. You make zombie movies. This is a romantic comedy. I know it's not for you, right? But it's like this movie, this movie, and this movie that made a lot of money in the last couple of years, right? It's got a role for this person, this person, this person, who, by the way, Barry has happened to work with because I've done my research before I pitched Barry, right? Um, and the script is really good. And here's what it's about. I'm going to pitch it to him. And then I'm going to shut up. And nine times out of 10, Barry's going to tell me he wants to read the script, right? But now Barry feels like he's making the choice, right? And he's deciding, is he going to really help me? Um, or Barry will say, boy, that isn't the script for me. In which case they get to go, okay, didn't expect it to be. But what would you do if it was your script? Where would you start? Who would you bring it to? And what I'm trying to get Barry to do is to give me a name. Because once I get that name, now I'm not a cold caller anymore. Now I am a referral from Barry, right? And now I have a connection with Barry. I have a mentor, right? So instead of just having somebody who says no to a script that's wrong for him, I have a mentor and our friendship might go on for the rest of our careers, right? And we might work on dozens of projects together. So you are always in the job of helping. You are not in the job of shoving something down somebody's throat. The final thing that I want to kind of leave you with before we jump into our actual pitches today, start with something true about yourself. Start your pitch 
with something true about yourself, a true story about you that made you want to write this script. Um, now, some people, when you do that, I have to warn you, not everybody is a nice person. So some people, when you do that, are going to say, I don't give a shit about you. Tell me what the story is. And if you get one of those people, those are the people that are technically called assholes in the industry. Um, and those people are never going to help you anyway. Right? Um, anybody, and they're probably not even real. Because real people who've actually done this before know that they're going to spend a lot of time in the room with you. And they want to know who you are. They want to know, do they like you? Right? They want to know, do I want to spend several years working with this person? Do I trust them? Do I feel like they're going to be receptive when I need changes, when I have notes, right? So real people want to know who you are. But for most people who are not assholes, when you start with a true story about yourself that relates to why you are writing the script, what it does is it shows them that this matters to you, that you're not just another writer throwing crap up against the wall to see if it sticks, that you are actually here to share something that matters to you. Um, and what happens is it builds connection. Even if they don't like the script, there's a good chance they're gonna like you. They might wanna help you even if they don't like the script. They might ask, what else have you got, right? Because you took that few moments to share something personal and true about yourself that kind of opens the door to a real relationship. Okay. Um, one more, I just can't stop myself. One more tip for those of you who are nervous. Who's nervous? Raise your hand if you're nervous about pitching. Yeah, thank you. Okay, beautiful. Remember to breathe. Um, if you are nervous, the more nervous you are, the more you want to breathe. Um, when you finish an idea, take two breaths. Did you notice that when I just did that, it actually gave me more authority in the room? Um, the other really beautiful thing about taking the two breaths is it will give you a chance to formulate your ideas. To think briefly, this is where I want to go next. But the best thing about taking a breath is most people can't deal with silence. And so when you take your breath, what will happen is usually the person you're pitching will ask you a question. And now you are no longer in this awkward monologue. You're now in this wonderful situation where you actually just get to answer a question about the thing you care most about in the world. And that is so much easier. So with all that said, what we're doing today is a little bit fake, but it's great practice, right? Because it's not really a dialogue, right? What it really is, is a three-minute monologue. 
But I still want to encourage you, start with a little story about yourself. I want to encourage you, pitch your script, even if you've memorized it and been practicing it for the last three weeks, pitch your script in a way that is slightly different than you pitched it before. I want to encourage you, watch the eyes of somebody else in the room. Um, and I want to encourage you to use your breath to control the room, to establish your authority, and to give yourself a moment of calm in between your ideas. So here's what's going to happen. Um, we are going to hear 10 pitches selected at random today. Um, if you signed up on our pitch form, then your name is already on our giant pitching wheel. Um, and we are going to spin that wheel 10 times, and we're going to pick 10 writers. Um, each writer is going to get to pitch me and a different faculty member from uh, the studio. Um, you're going to get three minutes to pitch. And at the end of your pitch, you're going to get feedback from three different sources. The first and the most important for, form of feedback, we've got 171 people here right now. Amazing, right? Uh, you lovely people who are listening to the pitch are going to chat in every single thing that works for you, that resonates for you, that you connected with in the pitch. I, I want to be really clear because we've got some of you are already part of our community and know how we do feedback here at the studio. Some of you are brand new. So if you're brand new, we're not going to try to give suggestions. We're not going to try to point out where it's broken. We're not going to try to help make it better. All we're going to do is communicate our real experience, what resonated with us, what felt true, what felt connected, what we liked, right? We're also not going to talk about our genre preferences, right? So if you happen to love action movies and this is an action movie, that's not a great note, right? Um, what I'd be more interested in if you love action movies is what's exciting to you about this particular action movie. Movie, And if you hate action movies and it's an action movie, don't tell me, well, I hate action movies. Tell me, hey, here's what resonates. And that will train you to be better at giving feedback. And it will also give much more help to the person who's pitching. So during the pitch, I want you to chat in every single thing that works. I'm going to read off some of those comments. and. Um, uh, and then you'll get feedback from one of our faculty members, and then you'll get a little bit of feedback from me. Um, because in order to keep the event moving, we're going to keep the faculty members' feedback to three minutes long, um, and we are going to mute you after your pitch, right? And that's not, we want to hear your thoughts and your questions and all those things, but um, if you were at last Pitch Festivus, it was really long. So we're going to try to actually end this one on time, and we're going to try to get a full 10 pitches in today. So that's why we're muting you. Um, if you have questions that don't get answered that come up for you that are really important, um, you can email info at writeyourscreenplay.com and they will get the message to me or to the mentor you pitched and we'll try to answer that question for you outside of Pitch Festivus. Okay. So um, I think we're good. Everyone understands how pitch, oh, I forgot the last thing. Um, after each pitch, you guys are going to get to vote. You're going to rank the pitch on a scale of one to 10, where one is the least successful and five is the most successful. Um, you're, you're going to rank each pitch just how you felt about it. And 
we're going to use that to select the top three pitches of the evening. And if you're selected to be one of the top three, you're going to get to pitch your script again at the end of Pitch Festivus. You're going to get to pitch your script in an entirely different way, integrating the notes that you heard. But the big thing is, I don't care if you really take the notes or not. The big thing is your second pitch is going to be different from your first one. We're going to practice that skill that we're talking about of pitching the script a different way. So if you're selected for the top three, we're going to have a runoff between the top three to decide who gets first place, who gets second place, and who gets third. And that will be determined by the 170 wonderful people in this room. Okay, great. Um, so how am I doing on time? Not bad. Okay, let me introduce our first mentor. Um, now, we are so lucky to have Stephen Bagatorian at our school. Um, Stephen's uh, script, American Gun, won three Independent Spirit Awards. He also wrote the Tupac movie, All Eyes on Me. Um, one of the things I love about, well, first of the way I met Stephen Bagatorian, um, I was speaking to a producer friend and I said, you know, I'm always looking for teachers. I want someone who's not only a brilliant writer, but who can hold a student's heart in his hand. And uh, my friend Ramphis said, let me introduce you to the man who wrote the best script I've ever read. Um, and uh, that was Stephen Bagatorian. Um, and Stephen turned out to be even more than Ramphis suggested. Uh, he's a wonderful mentor. Some of you have met him on Thursday Night Rights or have heard him on my podcast. Um, and uh, Stephen teaches our ProTrack mentorship program. Uh, where we will pair you one-on-one -on -one with Stephen. He will uh, meet with you every week or every other week. He will read every page you write, every draft you complete. Um, and he will give you a lifetime of mentorship for the tiniest fraction of what it would cost for you to go to grad school. Um, he also teaches a workshop. Stephen, is your workshop sold out or do you have, do you have spaces in there? Um, I believe we just have one space. Okay, so there's one space in Stephen's workshop. Yeah. It is by application. The applicant you have you do have to apply to be part of the workshop. That is a group of eight students studying with Stephen. Um, it's basically protract in a group. Um, so if you want that spot, um, you should direct message James. Uh, have an interview, and you can talk to him about it um, because there's probably going to be demand. <laughs> okay, so Stephen, welcome. Thank you so much for being here with us. Uh, thank you so much, Jake. Thank you for the lovely and very kind intro. And thanks to everybody for joining us and being here tonight for this whole thing. Um, it's really great to see everybody and I'm happy to be here. Beautiful. So um, I'm going to start with a question about uh, about screenwriting, uh, about pitching. Sure. So, and this is from one of our students. Um, what's the best way to get feedback on your pilot and pitch materials? once your writer's group becomes too busy to give timely feedback? And <laughs> how do you know when your materials are actually ready to start submitting to pitch contests and festivals? Okay, cool. All right, that's a, that's a great question. And those things are nicely linked. So, all right, I see the three minute timer just went on. I feel like I'm on a game show. Okay. This <laughs> All right. So uh, first of all, if you have a writer's group, then congratulations. That's excellent. You're doing exactly what you ought to be doing. It's something that I highly recommend to every single person here. If you're not in a writer's group right now actively, in my opinion, you're messing up. Uh, the most successful screenwriters I know, including myself and like all the friends who I've had forever in Hollywood, they are 
virtually all in writers groups and they continue to be in writers groups. I continue to be in a writers group with 10 professional writers who I meet with every two weeks and we critique each other's current material, rip it apart in a friendly way and help each other just stay really, really sharp. So uh, for those of you who don't know what a writers group is, it's really simple. It's basically just you meet up with a bunch of writers who are at a similar level to you or better than you and you critique each other's material in some fashion on a regular basis. I recommend once every two weeks. I think that's a really, really good timeline for a writer's group. Now, to answer the question directly, uh, if your writer's group is too busy to actually give you timely feedback, uh, you're in the wrong writer's group. That's like that's completely uh, at cross purposes with the whole point of a writer's group. You need people who have plenty of time to give you ample feedback all the time because they are just as serious and just as in it as you are. You need people who are willing to go without sleep occasionally for an hour or two because you need feedback quickly on a project of yours. You need people who are going to be there to support you and you will support them. And likewise, you need people who are willing to go without sleep occasionally for an hour or two because you need feedback quickly on a project of yours. You need people who are going to be there to support you and you will support them and likewise develop that peer group it's really critical uh basically that is what my workshop is at the school i run my workshop exactly the same way that i um have my own professional writers group going and so if you're curious and you want to kind of be in a writers group type of environment but you don't want to go assemble your own that's why we have the workshops here at jks and i can tell you my writers group it's been an amazing experience for everybody and i've been doing it for almost two years and i love it so um, that's the thing. Being in a writer's group is, I believe, the single, let's say, the single fastest, fastest accelerant that you can have control of outside of taking classes, right? Taking classes, having a mentor is probably the, the best thing you can do. But beyond that, a writer's group will accelerate how good you are so quickly you won't even believe it. Because it's like going to the gym. It's like working out. It's a way to stay incredibly sharp. And that, to answer the second part of the question, that's how you, you're going to know when your materials are ready. Your materials are ready when your whole writer's group is responding the way that you think people ought to be responding to your writing. I.e. if it's a comedy, they're laughing. If it's a drama, they're getting emotional in the right places. All that stuff. The writer's group is the key. And you need to fire your writer's group if they don't have time to give you feedback. Thank you. Amazing, Stephen. <laughs> wow, that was that was so perfect. Um, there's one thing I wanted to jump in on with that that I think is really mm -hmm. um you've got to evaluate your writers group. Um, not all writers groups are created equally. Um so uh and especially on moderated groups, it's one of the reasons we do the workshops and ProTrack. ProTrack is just like a writer's group, you're just with one mentor, right? Um, right. you, you need to evaluate your writer's group. If people, first off, you want to be the worst writer in your group, <laughs> right? Um, if most of the people in your group are not at your level of experience, um, then their notes probably are not more likely to make your script worse than make it better. Right. You want to be in a group where you feel like you're struggling to keep up. Um, the, the second thing is, uh, and that's why our workshops are application only, because we want to make sure that we put you in a group that's going to be properly challenging for you. Um, the second thing is, um, if your writer's group is busy telling you what to do, it's probably not a very good writer's group. Um, if your writer's group is effective, most of your, what you're receiving is not advice. Most of what you're receiving is feedback, experiential feedback on what's happening. So if your group isn't working for you, you, you need a new group. Okay, so let's pick our first person to pitch. Okay, here we come. 
Ready to spin? All right. Jane Bernard, come on down with the captive. We have Jane. Oh, there she is. Beautiful. I see you, Jane. Um, before we put the timer up, I want to remind all of you. Um, I want you to chat in every single thing that works, everything you resonated with, everything you connected with as you hear Jane's pitch. Jane, let's hear it. Oh, you're muted, Jane. She, um, Valeria, can we uh, restart the timer for her? There. And, uh, I think I am. Beautiful. Okay. First, I just want to say thank you very much. I'm I'm nervous. I'm looking for somebody's <laughs> eyes to stare at. <laughs> um, so I am. I have a, a. I had a friend who was murdered, and it was really distressing. It was a really brutal murder, and um, and I, um, you know, naturally was upset. He was like 31. I was also about the same age, and when it went. No one knew who did it. And when it went to trial, it was a really, a lot of injustice occurred. And I was so upset by that, that I decided to write a script for poetic justice. And that's why I wrote the script. And I don't believe in giving notoriety to criminals. So I placed it in a different state, but because the trial was like utterly bizarre, I got the transcript and was able to place it right in the story. So it's a story about a woman named Electra Smith, who is in her early 20s, who lives on the bay in the bayou in New Orleans. And she's she's kind of eccentric and um, she's very obsessed with revenge. And she's obsessed with revenge because she has nightmares and her nightmares about her, are about her previous lives. And so she believes that she has to get revenge, but she also has to get out of uh, Lafitte, which is the name of the city that she lives in. And she works at a shrimp place, a shrimp um, place where they collect shrimp, a boating company. Anyway, um, a man comes for a job on the offload crew and she likes him and he's from New York. And she figures he's her ticket out of Lafitte. And they, um, they get together and they have great chemistry and he likes her because she's a little crazy. And um, she and he start to, create a relationship, except for the fact that it turns out he's really there to offseat a, off a pot offload. And he's only going to be there for six months. But she figures that's oh, okay. After six months, she can go back to New York with him. Um, so they're there. And while they're there, um, the, the doc boss gets brutally murdered. And no one knows what happened. And it's a terrible murder that, that mirrors the murder of my friend. And um, after a little bit of time, it's time for the guy, for Casey, the guy from New York, to leave, and he goes back. And they still don't know, and the whole town's pretty upset. And then all of a sudden, Electra has this epiphany in church, and she literally faints. And the next day, she goes to the district attorney and, and tells him, I know who did this, and I'm going to, for, um, I can't believe I'm out of time. <laughs> <laughs> Give her a round of applause. <laughs> All right. So let's 
We're going to listen to some of the things that resonated. And Jane, it's okay that you didn't finish because you had us, right? Did everybody want to know where that went? Yeah. Great. Um, so I'm just scrolling through. Okay. Uh, the previous, uh, uh, oh, already on the edge of my seat. Her first line had my attention in my heart. Obsessed with revenge. Buy you revenge. Um, uh, a lot of people connected to the vengeance. The previous lives. Yeah, I thought that was interesting, right? It was a an extra layer of the script that that we didn't we didn't expect just from the true story that you gave, and and, and that was really interesting. And and you were able to wrap that back in. Uh, eccentric, obsessed, nightmares. Um, yeah, lots about that. Uh, the shrimp place. Um, the past lives control her in this one. Uh, very human and relatable premise. Um, Yep, uh, her, she thinks he can be her ticket out, the love story. She's a little crazy. Uh, the uh, the pot offload, six months to go back to New York. She has a relationship, but they're there to do a drug deal. A drug runner and a shrimper. Yeah, and then the murder occurs. Awesome. There are so many more great comments. I'm going to encourage you to scroll through. Um, but Stephen, what was your experience? Oh, you're muted, Stephen. Okay, uh, can, can you hear me? Yep. Okay, great. Uh, Jane, so so nice to meet you. And um, first of all, that was, uh, I thought that was terrific. Um, I thought that was really fantastic and extremely compelling. Um, I think that it's incredibly brave of you to not only be writing the story, but to get up here in front of a couple hundred strangers and be talking about a story about such an incredibly personal and, um, you know, deeply meaningful and painful subject matter. So um, kudos to you, because I don't even know if, if I could do that. That's it's really extraordinary. Um, so I would say that I thought that your pitch was really fantastic on a lot of levels. Um, I felt like it was so genuine and earnest. And the fact that you started immediately with the personal connection was phenomenal. And like everyone else was saying, that drew me in right away. And I felt like I was just kind of locked in from your first sentence. Um, I thought that one of the more unique aspects to me of your pitch, considering that it's coming from someone who's not a professional writer, I assume, is that you had a real bracing clarity to your pitch. And it was very, very easy to follow and to understand. There was nothing you said that confused me. And that's incredibly rare when you're hearing a pitch from someone who's not a professional writer. So the clarity was great. I thought that the details you gave, whether it was the past lives or the shrimp boat or the eccentricity of the main character, all the details were terrific. You really drew me in with a lot of the granular sort of specifics that you were talking about. Now, I felt like what you actually gave us was pretty much a phenomenal pitch of the first act of a movie. And I felt like if you had 10 minutes, you would have been able to really land this pitch in a perfect way. But as it is, I felt like I was on the edge of my seat and I wanted to hear the rest of the pitch. And so just in terms of pacing and momentum, my only critique would be just if you have to pitch something in such a compressed frame of time, like the three minutes here, which is so difficult to do, you're just gonna need to work out a different momentum for how you pitch the story. Cause I feel like you gave us a phenomenal pitch of the first act. And if we had 10 minutes, this would have been perfect. Uh, right now, the reason I say that I don't know you gave us the full pitch is that I don't know what type of movie we're talking about in terms of the body of the film. And when I say the body of the film, I mean primarily the second act. Because to me, what you pitched was an incredible first act that ends with this crazy moment where the person's killed. And now you've got the main character having this epiphany 
But that leaves me on the edge of my seat to try to figure out, okay, well, what's she going to do? And what's going to happen? And what's going to be the middle of the story? Because I feel like that's really what we're missing. And so I don't know where it's going to go, but I love the idea of the past lives. I love the idea of the eccentric main character. And I love all the pieces that you've assembled on the board. And, um, you know, not for nothing, it's also a terrific title. Um, it's a really, really good title for a piece. So I hear the music playing me off. Um, just kudos to you. That was really phenomenal. Great job, man. Yeah. Awesome. To jump in quickly on that, Jane, um, the pitch is freaking great. Um, uh, I wanted to know more. And I, I think there, there are two elements I particularly loved, right? I love just starting with the, the honest thing about your, your, your friend being murdered right? Um, and, and your genuine pain about that. It, it made me go, oh, I want to I wanna understand that. And then the second thing was surprising me with coming in with this character with the past lives, right? Um, because that added a different layer to me that I, that I didn't see coming. Um, and it, it created tension where I was curious about how these stories were going to line up. Um, now, in relation to Stephen's note about moving a little too slowly, right? Um, I also think um, it's probably important for us to know what her relationship with the boss is, right? He really doesn't come up into the pitch until he's murdered. Um, and to understand, in, in a way, there's like a triangle here, right? Between this, this man she loves who's only there for six months and this, this boss who's going to be murdered that obviously needs to put pressure on both on, on, on that relationship, right? And so I think actually if you find a way to pithily connect to the relationship with the boss, it might also help you to get more quickly through the romantic relationship and, you know, get us through that first act in the first minute of your pitch, uh, rather in the first three minutes. Um, the other note that I had was you told me that a lot of crazy stuff happened in the trial. Um, and I, I, I wanted just a little bit more detail there. I, I wasn't sure if the injustice was committed against the 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 victim or if it was against the perpetrator or both and um and i was curious about that and one of the things that's amazing about a true story when you tell the story is it will the person will carry that into the pitch and kind of fill in some details that you then don't have to actually explicitly speak especially in a pitch this short um the final thing is i'm not sure if i would mention that you changed the location I think there's something amazing about this being a true story. Um, and, and there's something intriguing about that. And I'm not sure if it, if it helps you just to, to mention that you changed it. Uh, I might just tell them that it was based on a true story uh, because that's already pretty damn exciting. Um, but you did a beautiful job. Let's give her a round of applause. The uh, wonderful team is going to uh, put up uh, a, a little box where you guys can all vote. One is, I didn't connect to the pitch at all. Five, I think this pitch is perfect. Um, go ahead and rank the pitch. Um, did, did, there we go. We got it up there. All right. So let's get the big wheel up. All right, Elise Stamos, Great Morning America, GMA. Come on down, Elise. Hello. Hello. Hey. So I was watching Good Morning America this past week, and there was this big scandal about TJ Holmes and Amy Robach and, and 
their relationship and how they both cheated on their spouses, but yet left them in August. And, and then I'm looking into the um, background of, you know, what's going on, you know, behind the scenes. And, you know, now Good Morning America has taken them off the air and um, didn't want to focus on their relationship because then it's messing up the, their news story. And, uh, you know, now they're, they're going to put their rules and regulations behind them saying that they're um, going to not satisfy their their regulations in relation to how they're going to conduct their their business or how they're going to portray themselves on camera because they have now violated the ABC and Disney standards. So I thought it might be a great concept for either a TV movie or a reality series if they let them go. So that's the story in relation to that. In relation to my background, I had worked at um, Sally Jesse Raphael way back when. I was a literary agent for 20 some years. I have my own film production company, NightQuest Entertainment. And that's me. So. Beautiful. You've got a minute and 20 seconds left. Is there anything else you want us oh, to know? Okay. Well, you want, you want me to pitch another project that I have? No, no. I want, I want you to stay focused on this one. Um, okay. if, if you're done, that's also cool. Yeah, I'm done. Okay, beautiful. Let's give her a round of applause. Yay, me. <laughs> All right, let's see what people connected to. Um, uh, uh, okay, so portrait of themselves, the violation, they, the inquiring mind, uh, they violated the stand, they violated the Disney standards. A lot of people connected to that. Uh, let them go. They angered the mouse. Uh, Sally Jesse, yeah, I worked with Sally Jesse Raphael. Uh, there are no regulations on this kind of relationship, I believe. Uh, rules and regulations in place on how they conduct themselves. Um, like the impetus of the story, um, uh, that's me. Uh, there's a movie like uh, 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 the pretense that new shows mirror reality has a great big crack in it. Um, uh, I saw ABC boot uh, uh, Bill Maher uh, 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 ripped from the headlines. Awesome idea, go for it. Um, okay, uh, the workplace romance. Um, beautiful. I'm, I'm going to give uh, uh, Steve a chance to jump in. Okay, awesome. Okay. Um, all right, uh, Helize, uh, thank you for that pitch. That was great. Great to meet you. Great to talk to you. Um, I thought that was uh, really compelling uh, in terms of a concept and uh, I love how you immediately gave us the timeliness and the relevance of this by connecting it to the real story of what's been going on with GMA. I thought that was really smart. Um, and I actually think it's a very smart jumping off point for a story, like I'd like to see that. And I actually became more compelled when I found out about your background and the fact that you worked in this space yourself on Sally Jesse and that in particular, I mean, being a literary agent is also really interesting, but the fact that you worked on Sally Jesse Raphael, if I were you, I would open the pitch with that because that immediately gives you credibility and authority to be pitching this story. And that's something it's always very smart to establish just immediately when you're pitching to anybody. If you are an authority on 
your story. And as Jake was saying earlier, uh, you you are the ultimate authority on your story. But if you have some kind of actual empirical proof you can point to, like you worked in that world, it's a great idea to say that at the outset because it immediately silences any kind of critique about the authenticity and a lot of things that people might otherwise question you on once you establish that you're the authority in the room on this particular topic. So I would definitely start with that. Now, similar to um, the note that I had for Jane, I would say that uh, this wasn't really a complete pitch. Um, in fact, this to me felt like it was more of a pitch of like the first 20 minutes or so maybe of a story. And it's a concept, but of course there were no, there were no characters. You know, there were no characters and we also don't know what's gonna happen in your story again here uh, in terms of the actual movie. We know what the setup and the concept is, but this really could go anywhere once they get fired, once they let go. It could be any kind of any kind of movie, you know, we don't know. And so that's really the thing that I would want to figure out is, A, who are the characters we're following? And B, what's the story? Are they going to go on a wild adventure a la National Lampoon's Vacation? Um, are they going to get in trouble because one of them is going to go murder one of their bosses and it turns into a twisty, dark murder comedy? Like, we don't know. Uh, but that's that's what I'm curious about. I'm I'm compelled by the jumping off point. I think it's a great concept. Uh, you seem like you've got really charming good energy. I feel like your vibe is very like a positive vibe and you also present yourself very well. So I would love to hear you walk me through this whole story and just introduce me to your characters. But as of right now, like you've got me, like you've hooked me, but I definitely want to find out a lot more info about what's going to be in the main pitch. And this might be a recurring theme tonight just because it's really hard to pitch a whole movie in three minutes, but I think you did a terrific job setting it up and I definitely want to hear more. So um, really, really great job, Hillis. Awesome. Thank you, Stephen. Um, yeah. Your timing was incredible. Like, it, perfect. Uh, <laughs> so, um, so Elise, I'm, I'm so glad that this came up, actually, because, um, you know, what you're trying to do is something really hard, right? You're, you're trying to pitch something that is like a brand new idea to you, right? Where it, where, where it sounds like you haven't even really had the time that you need to, to fully develop the story, right? And, and I was talking about that earlier, right? When I was like, hey, let's make up a pitch in the room, right? Um, so I want to talk a little bit about how to actually do that. Um, and Steve gave us a really great, um, some great groundwork for that, right? The first thing is, the fact that you worked on Sally Jesse means that you have unique insights into this story. Um, and you can use them to eclipse some of the gaps in what you've figured out so far about the plot. Right. Um, so remember, whenever there's a torn from the headline story, you're not the only one chasing it. Right. There are a lot of people chasing it. Right. So um, unless you've got the, the option, in which case you want to lead with that, unless you've got the option, what really matters is your take. Right. And I think by leaning into your experience, here's the thing that a lot of people don't know about these shows. Right. Here's the thing that that always drove me crazy when I was there. Here's the thing that I wish people understood. Right. What you can do is you can kind of lean into, um, without having figured out all the twists and turns, you can kind of help the audience predict some of the places this piece might go and your specific take on it. The second thing is, when in doubt, a main character with a want that is really clear and really hard to get, a really clear obstacle, and an ironic choice, uh, or ideally a an ironic twist and another ironic twist, right? Some ironic choices that launch them into the action, right? And so when in doubt, when you got to make something up, who's the character? What does she want? 
what's the most ironic choice you could make? What's the most ironic consequence that could come out of that? And what's the most ironic uh, choice you could make out of that? And even if that just gives us the first act and then a general sense of the movement of the piece, right? Um, often that's enough to kind of get us hooked in where we're going like, I don't just want this story. I want Helise's version of this story. Um, the last thing that I think would be valuable for all of you, um, if your pitch goes well, often people are going to want to know more, right? They're going to want to. They're going to want you to be able to drill down a little bit further, and they're going to ask you a similar question to the question I asked, right? Um, and so, when you're practicing pitching, practice your quick version, your three to five minute pitch, um, but also practice your ten minute pitch, and also practice your fifteen minute pitch because you want to be able to comfortably drill down. Um, and if somebody asks you, they're interested, right? Uh, if someone's not interested, they're not asking. So if somebody asks you, um, don't demur. <laughs> Even if you have to make something up, make something up. Put yourself on the spot and make something up because it means they want to know more. There's something that they're longing for. And even if you throw the question back at them, well, what do you want to know, right? And they will then tell you what they're looking for. And now you know which question to answer. Uh, all that said, it was incredibly brave for you to show up and pitch something at an early stage of development. And I hope you run with this. And thank you so much for sharing it with us. Uh, so let's give her another round of applause. Yeah. Um, let's uh, put up the voting so you guys can vote. Again, one is the least successful. Five is the most successful. All right. I think we're good. So our next mentor is Karen Parton-Wells. Um, Karen uh, is like one of my, my proud, uh, proud papa moment getting to introduce Karen. Uh, Karen came up through our program uh, in my masterclass. Um, she is an extraordinary writer who writes, oh my God, Karen can literally write anything. I, I Karen's one of those people who like dissects plots for fun. Um, uh, you know, uh, there was a time when Karen was like, you know, I, I want to learn how to write procedurals. And all she did was just break down hundreds of procedurals. And Karen's the kind of person who can just deliver a script in like, oh, it's been two weeks. I wrote another script, right? Um, she's so unbelievably fast and she's so incredibly good at structure. And there are some people who can do that. Um, but there are very few people who can do that with Karen's sensitivity um, and Karen's ability. Well, actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about one of Karen's projects. Karen was in what I think, was this your first paid gig? It was, it was like the shaken baby story. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Her first paid gig was literally like the project from hell. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a torn from the headlines, shaken baby movie with some producers who have never produced a movie before. Um, and it's one of those things that it, it, it's like, how do you make this not exploitative? How do you make this not just horrible to watch? You know, how do you actually find a story here other than the fact that a baby died, right? Um, and Karen took that story and she kept pushing on it and pushing on it and pushing on it until it became this beautiful character-driven story that asked some really profound questions where even the, the bad guy was humanized. Um, and, uh, and where you could kind of see all of the social circumstances that, that kind of conspired to create that incredible tragedy. Um, and to me, that is, that is a sign of a truly great writer, right? It's the writer who, who can take any project and transform it into something beautiful. Um, and I've seen Karen just do that on so many projects. Um, 
Karen teaches our ProTrack mentorship program. Um, she also has a workshop. Karen, is your workshop sold out or do you have, do you have no, a No, there are two spots. Two spots. Because I have two, we opened up a second workshop. So now okay, there's two great. spots. Yeah. Beautiful. So we have a uh, two, her, her first workshop has been sold out for so long. She did a second one. <laughs> so we've got two spots left in that workshop if you want to apply. Um, so Karen, I'm going to pull up a question for you. Okay, great. Here, here's a question. Is it worth even practicing your pitch when you're in the middle of your early drafts and not set on the story yet? Yes, 100%. When you practice your pitch, you will find out what your story means to you because you yourself will get bored when you're talking about your project. And when you find that you're not interested in what you're saying anymore, you will realize your 90 to 120 page script isn't going to work. So it's really great to write all of that down in a one pager or a treatment, or if you're working on a TV show, do a series Bible. If you have writer's block on your project, you can write all that stuff down. I would say actually practicing your pitch is an exceptional way to outline because now you're getting into character work. You're getting into beginning, middle and end. You can break it down into mini movies or seven X structure in that way. And you can see, okay, I know where it's gonna end and I know my turning point, but I don't know all the rest of it. So you can write the stuff you do know, you can write a thousand pages to find all of that stuff. You know, there is something to be said for free writing and, and not knowing the plan and figuring out the structure. But if you get stuck, putting together pitch materials is the best way to figure out what to write and to be present in the room when you are going to pitch. You know, people spend eight months on their treatments and their series Bible. The WGA has, a, you know, it will pay you to, to, to literally write. That's part of what you get paid for in the contract is to write a treatment. And it's, it's, a little, it's worth a lot of money. So I think definitely practicing your pitch and developing those pitch materials as you're writing. I mean, free write, because that's where your subconscious gets to take over. But when you get stuck, definitely get together with your subconscious and try to make a plan. Um, Jake teaches a TV series Bible class, which will be great for writing a treatment for a movie too. It, you can learn really a lot of the same concepts in that class if you're interested. And if you don't know how to practice your pitch, you're like, I don't know what to do. Make a TV series Bible. If you don't know how to make a Bible or a treatment, you can take that class. But yes, it is like the best way. When I get stuck, I like to make a plan. And then I like to throw the plan away usually. And also a hot tip, write your plan on like a piece of paper or the back of your script so that you're not married to your plan. So it's not like a spreadsheet that you'll never, ever, ever, ever throw away. <laughs> write it down somewhere that feels free. That way you're not like giving yourself writer's block if you can't stick to that plan. Like the whole goal here is not to get stuck. So that's what I like to do is make a piece of paper that is just very loose and i know i feel like oh i'll probably lose this anyway and just just play with practicing my pitch um and in terms of talking always talk non-stop that jake talked about that already though so we didn't need to cover that always tell everybody about your project every chance you can get <laughs> thank you 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 <laughs> uh, who would you like to thank, Karen? <laughs> oh, uh, my mom. <laughs> Always so, my mom. <laughs> that is some amazing advice from one of the most prolific writers that I know. Um, and but to to just drill down on like the practicing your verbal pitch before you know what your show is or your movie is. Um, I was working on this project uh, in my early twenties called The Seduction of Hillary Rodham. And it was a nightmare project for me. It was a book that was written by an arch conservative 
that was kind of set out to lambast Hillary Rodham Clinton. And my boss had optioned it. And I had to find a way to tell the story that didn't destroy everything I believed politically. Um, and that that you know that could work. And I got really depressed. I couldn't figure it out. Uh, so I went to uh, a sports bar called Sports Harbor in Los Angeles uh, to escape. And I ended up pitching that script, which I didn't know how to tell to everybody at Sports Harbor. And I figured out that pitch at Sports Harbor. Um, and that is now my trick. I, I will go to a bar when I don't know how my movie works. And I will pitch a bunch of drunk people a bunch of different ways. And just my need to entertain somebody, oftentimes I'll end up solving the story for myself just in the process of talking it out. So that's an incredibly powerful strategy. Thank you, Karen. Um, yeah. All right. So let's break out the big pitch wheel. Mark Carroll, Mark, Mark Carroll, this Disability Liberation Project. All right, come on down, Mark. Can you hear me? We can. Hey, how are you? I am good, and I am so pumped that I get, I'm just trying to turn my camera on. Yeah, we've I'm, met before. It's great to see you again. Yeah, and to be honest, I'm, and I'm not sucking up here, but I'm, I'm saving up to do the master class and pro track with you. So awesome. pretty cool. Um, anyway, so yeah, thank you. Yeah, um, great. Okay. Did the timer start? Oh, I got yeah. Yeah, actually, okay. let's reset it for, for, for him, Valeria. Okay. Um, first of all, uh, the, the Disability Liberation Project is uh, based on... Um, my lived experience as an advocate and what might happen if we got a speculative future where um, the, the political landscape has changed, liberals, conservatives in Canada and Democrats and Republicans, the parties are almost non-existent. Uh, there's new parties that have been formed and, and now Canada and America are looking to become one country and uh, in the midst of that, there's been some changes with healthcare and, and some landscape changes where people with disabilities are being put back into institutions because uh, the system has determined that they have behavioral issues or they can't cognitively direct their own care or anything like that. But what really is happening through uh, a guy that's an independent reporter, uh, Riker, uh, <clears throat> Riker Schilling, uh, figures out that his uh, best friend, his brother basically, uh, Cody uh, Wheeler, it, who's disabled and has a um, lived experience in the criminal justice system, has uh, gone missing after a uh, long-standing uh, dispute with his former uh, care provider and uh, there's some things that get uncovered as in uh, um, contracts that were given out for companies to do experiments and uh, help to relieve people with disabilities. But what's not being talked about is that these, uh, these contracts are being carried out in more rural areas of, of uh, Canada and People are being uh, misled, uh, experimented on under the guides that we're going to help 
your your relieve your pain and stuff but there's uh really when you got people with controversial criminal uh pasts and stuff like that and they're going missing well they're not getting public sympathy from the media and uh it really pulls into question uh how much do we uh do we value people as much as we say we do and i just want to say that this is uh dedicated to my mentor who uh has really inspired me and uh i i think i've said all i can say about it thanks let's give him a round of applause Amazing. beautiful let's see what people connected excellent x okay I'm so much okay wow uh Wow, uh, there are hundreds of comments here. So, um, uh, okay, uh, Canada and America uh, looking to become one country. Um, a lot of people connected to that. The future dystopia, uh, the institutions, um, uh, the the uh, uh, institutionalization. You being a disability advocate, um, uh, the political upheaval, uh, the independent reporter. Uh, institutionalization and minimalization, system putting people into institutions, political controversy, um, reinstitutionalization of the disabled is very important. Um, they don't direct their own care, the undeserved misfortune, the reporter's brother who's gone missing, uh, the lived experience in the criminal justice system, um, uh, this dispute with the care provider. Um, uh, wow, there's so much here. Uncovering the truth, the experiments, uh, the futuristic politics, uh, great title and premise, um, what's kept secret. Uh, the independent reporter figures out his best friend who's disabled, contracts experiments to relieve people with disabilities. There's something not being talked about. Beautiful. There's so much more here. So Mark, I'm going to encourage you to, to scroll through. Karen. Yes. How's Amazing. Um, the Disability Liberation Project is a bold title that hooks me right away. I'm in, I'm excited, I don't know what it is, but I'm excited about liberation, right? It, it sounds like it is a, a revolution, right? The title already tells me this is a revolution. When you began with lived experience as an advocate, it tells me not only that, that you know, this is what you are living through, but this is also like potentially something you're writing as your worst nightmare, which is really powerful. Um, I think the, the you know, thing that every, I, I, I wrote down the highlights and I, I wrote down absolutely everything you said because your words were um, always specific and every single word you used had value to the story. To the story, And that is so powerful. I'm extremely impressed. There was no fat in this at all. Um, you've clearly practiced and you were so succinct and excited, I'm excited. Um, I love the mini ride that I went on because I thought that this was gonna be a utopia when you said like, liberals and, and uh, Republicans were gone and non-existent and Canada and America were coming together. I was like, oh, we get Canada. We're going to be, we're going to have free healthcare. Um, and then you took that away from me by telling me, not only do we not have free healthcare, we've locked up people with disabilities and we're experimenting on them. Like the experiment is such a visual, visceral thing. Um, and not only are we experimenting on them, we're probably killing them. And you're not telling me that we're killing them, but by the fact that they're going missing makes me lean in and wonder if they're dead. So, um, you know, I think that uh, all of this is working what you said. What I would like is a couple more minutes about Riker. I'd like to know who he is at the beginning of the story. 
um, if he is has always been an advocate, if he's always been interested in helping, or if he was more jaded in the beginning and then became somebody that would help people with disabilities because Cody was missing. Um, and I'd love to know who it, are his allies, who stands in his way, what are the hot relationships in this story? For me, I, I love to hear about the relationships in a pitch, you know, who was, uh, like the who was together in the beginning, whether they're friends or family members or a love interest, how did they separate? Um, you know, what stretched them to a breaking point? What brought them back together? Those sort of structural points can be really helpful for me. I don't want to hear the whole structure, but I love seeing how relationships twist and turn in the story. That kind of grabs me. So you told me that Cody was missing. So then he's not the hot relationship because um, he's gone from the movie, unless maybe in the, he, he is found in the middle and he's not dead. And then they team up together to find everybody else. But something about Riker's personality and his like life around him, because the world you built is totally finished as a pitch. And the um, fact that it's a revolution is pitched and I'm being, I'm finished, I guess. But I just, I, I really, really, really love it. I would just like a little more about Riker and the relationships in the movie. Beautiful. <laughs> Thank you, Karen. Yeah. Um, I actually want to read, uh, Mitch Birnbaum just chatted in. This is Handmaiden's Tale for the Disability. Yeah. Um, and what an incredible, I'm going to encourage Mark to steal that. <laughs> right? Like that is such um such a really brilliant way of, of capturing that. Um, Mark, the first thing is, holy crap, is this a great title? Um, and, and I absolutely love the bait and switch you're doing with us. Um, you know, I at the beginning I was writing down movies like Hollywood and Inglorious Bastards, right? Like movies where we envision we envision a and shows where we envision like a, a, a an alternate history. Um and I love that you sucked us in to believing that, and then you you start to twist it on us. Um, where would I push this? I actually think that there's enough room in this pitch to accomplish a lot of things that Karen is describing. Um, and I think the way that you do that is you compress the part where you're talking about the US and Canada to really push it through the lens of the Disability Liberation Project, right? I think. To really understand this piece, all we need is, is, well, first off, I would start in your own story, sharing um, what's the thing that people don't understand that connects to this story as a disability advocate, right? How are the, how in today's world are the, the good intentions turned inside out or upside down, right? Um, in a way that parallels the story. And what that will do is it will give a little drum roll um, then I think all we really need is like, the world seems to have healed, right? Things are better. The world is freaking great. You as a Canada emerged, right? And there's this incredible project called the Disability Liberation Project, right? And then, and give us a brief taste of what that is. And then give us the character and give us his investment in the Disability Liberation Project, right? How excited is he? That his brother can be a part of it. How connected? How is this like the the dream come true for him, so that we can really feel how his expectations start to change in the same way ours are ours do? And I think if you do it that way, because I agree with literally everything Karen said, I think if you do it that way, you will then be able to land all of Karen's suggestions without actually having to add anything to the length of this pitch. 
Um, Mark, you did a beautiful job, um, and thank you. So let's give him a round of applause, and we're going to vote. Just a few more seconds. All right, going once, going twice. Jose, let's break out the big wheel. And Vitiello, Thursday's child. Come on down, Anne. Okay. So I feel very strongly that women at a certain age need a reinvention story that is not eat, pray, love. I have noticed women in their 40s, 50s, beyond, who don't have the privilege after divorce to follow their bliss. They need to just get a job. My um, main character is based on some of my own experience. And she's one of these women who started out with lots of promise. She has a habit of going to her comfort zone. She had a beautiful world in her marriage, in her youth and in her 30s, raising her kids. She paid the price, took the motherhood penalty willingly, raised a family, and has since gone on to watch as her ex marries an increasingly shinier wife every few years. And he just skates away. Uh, she decides to leave the fancy city life, revert to her hometown, her comfort zone, where she can do what she wants to do because you're supposed to do what you want to do and the money will follow. Um, the money doesn't follow. And she's frustrated. So she inadvertently blows up that world. She has gone back to her old high school sweetheart. She's doing what she loves. She's teaching motorcycle lessons. She's the village kook. She's got a simple world. She doesn't have to think about her failures in the city anymore. She cooks and bakes things for local artisanal shops and stuff like that. She's happy. She thinks that's all she wants. When she hears about her ex's most recent marriage, it upsets a bunch of people close to her. It upsets her. And she acts out and does something that entirely blows up her comfortable little life. Now she's got to go back to Manhattan. Now she's got to find a way to reinvent herself. And Another thing that's important to me is the growing um, inequality, the economic inequality, and the shock that a lot of these women, including my main character, face when the job market really has no place for them. So she ends up having to work for an insufferable millennial, being an invisible, once again, she's invisible, she's an invisible personal assistant to obscenely wealthy people, and a new client a new young, recently married influencer and her husband needs someone to set up their new fancy home. Worlds collide. My main character once again has to reinvent, re-reinvent because she has become an invisible peon working for the people who in the kind of world she used to live in. So that second arrangement comes crashing down. And in the end, she realizes and she must reinvent in a way that gets her out of her comfort zone into a much better, more interesting life. Beautiful. Give her a round of applause. All right. So let's see what people have to say. Oh my God, there's so much. Okay. Uh, I'm just going to start in the middle. <laughs> shinier wife, the husband skates away. Um, increasingly a shinier wife. Um, uh, the money doesn't follow. Yeah, I love that turn, right? Wasn't that a great little turn there? Um, 
Uh, you're supposed to do what you want to do and the money will find. Yeah, okay, a lot of people connecting to that. Um, blows up that world. It's a different kind of hallmark, says Kelly. Yeah, I love that comment, Kelly. Um, uh, she had a beautiful world and watches her ex get, uh, yeah, a lot of the village kook, um, teaching the motorcycle lessons. Uh, love the title. Uh, love that it's aimed for women who can no longer fall for the eat, pray, love ideology. Uh, she doesn't have to think about her failures. Uh, village kook who bakes. Uh, reinventing herself, uh, the economic inequality, um, insufferable millennial. Yeah, there's so much great here. Karen, you want to jump in? Yes, I love this. Um, it is absolutely terrifying to be a woman and figure out the marketplace. At, at, at any, I mean, at any age, but especially uh, as we're in our 40s. Um, I, man, it is, it's, it's, I really felt so connected to this. And I was so excited when she went back and was a motorcycle um, teacher giving our motorcycle lessons. And um, you hooked me into that world. And it was a really jarring experience to kind of be like hooked into this Hallmark movie and then jarred back out of it. And now we're switching again. And that's really cool that you left that and we blew up that life to go back. Um, and I, I, you know, everything everybody said about the shinier wife and of course the money will follow. It made my stomach sink. Uh, sink when you were pitching it because that's we all think that still I still believe that <laughs> and I thought oh wait is that not true um and so I think that's gonna help a lot of people it's really 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 powerful sentence but my most favorite sentence here is gets out of comfort gets out of a comfort zone into a better more interesting life um you know everybody has these extreme losses in life that almost always are rewarded by something positive and that that felt like the message here to me, like this loss is going to be rewarded. But I didn't know what she was rewarded with. You didn't tell me. Maybe you ran out of time. So I wanted to know, like, where is the rest of the movie? Um, you know, is what is her what is her new interesting life? I was I was I was concerned, like what happens to her? Uh, and I also wanted to know, like, what what did she learn? Like, how did she get out of this life where she's in Manhattan? Because, you know, you told me she blew up the previous life because she was upset about the new shiny wife. And I wanted to know why was this wife the one she was upset about? Why not? Was this could this be the first shiny new wife or why was it if there's a bunch of them? Why was this the one she was mad at so much so that she would blow up her life that she was settled into in her hometown? And she was really enjoying that enough to go back and work um, in her old life as a, uh, you know, a peon and have to be around all the people that she used to be like. So that, that part kind of confused me in the pitch. Why, why did she go back to her Manhattan life then? And then what did she learn to get out of the Manhattan life? And what is the more interesting life for her at that point? So I would say if you could kind of pinpoint those two things down and also what she did in the end, um, will really help. And I, I was curious about her kids, um, what they think about the dad, what they think about the new wife, what they think about her, what they think about her hometown, what they think about her high school sweetheart. You know, are they on board with her? Is she shuffling back, them back and forth? Are they living with their dad? Are they grown maybe? You know, that that was a really a point I kept coming back to. Or did they have kids? Or where are the kids? Yeah, but really well done. Um, is this a movie or a TV series? <laughs> This is an indie drama with some comedy in it. And the way she blew up her life was by sleeping with, unknowingly sleeping with her boyfriend's son. Oh my God. Oh, <laughs> Tell <right>. us that. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, all right, I'm gonna jump in. Karen, thank you for those amazing notes. Um, holy crap, what a pitch. Um, so, and 
one of the things that when you hear a lot of pitches, one of the things that happens is you can start to tell whose structure is really working from the way they pitch. Um, and I know you ran out of time there. I am 100% certain that your structure is working. Um, one of the things that you demonstrated to me was just a profound understanding of how structure works. Um, and despite the fact that you ran out of time, you were able to deliver that in a very condensed format. Um, one of the choices I think I really loved, probably my favorite choice in this whole piece, is that immediately after her husband remarries, you allow her to actually experience the eat, pray, love moment, right? Uh, and you let that happen early. Um, and then you take it away from her. Um, I had the same note as Karen. I wanted to know what happened. And now I know it's actually even cooler than I imagined. So yes, tell us, tell us, tell us. Um, Jerry Clemens had a really interesting com comment. Uh, it's Hallmark by Darren Aronofsky. Uh, and I could really feel that, that twist in it, right? Again, I encourage you to steal that, right? It's an amazing comp that he's doing. And it felt exactly, exactly what, what, you're, what you're doing here. Um, the, the only thing I didn't need you to stick the ending, but I needed, uh, if you, if you're not going to have a lot of time, you have to kind of give us a general infrastructure. Um, and I think, uh, like Karen, at first I was like, oh, you know, do we need all these wives? And then I realized like the, once you told me she, what she does because of the new wife, I realized that like the wives might be connected to the ax, right. And that in some way she has to break this connection to her husband right, in order to go on, on her journey. So I don't need the formula to be that, but if you don't have time to pitch the whole movie, you want to kind of give us that little cheat sheet uh, where we're going to understand it. And, and the most important thing that I really need, I know that you disagree with Eat, Pray, Love, but I don't know what you agree with yet, right? And I don't know, it, is this an Aronofsky thing where it's like transcendent and destructive at the same time, right? Or... Do you have an answer about what, what that path is in the reality of our society for most women? Uh, or does this piece just raise the question of does that actually exist? But I wanted a stronger sense of, I know what your take is not, and I really love that as a place to start. But by the end of the pitch, I want a sense, even if it's a super complicated take, of what your take might be. Um, that said, uh, and if we were not in a three-minute format, I would need to know the rest of this pitch. Um, you, you were doing a really extraordinary job. So let's give her another round of applause. Yeehaw. And let's give Karen a round of applause. And thank you, Karen. Um, again, you can study with Karen in our ProTrack Mentorship Program or in our workshop. Okay, beautiful. Um, so our next mentor is Jonathan Redding. He's the newest mentor to join our faculty. Um, if you guys watched Homeland, um, Jonathan was a writer on Homeland. It's amazing how long that show ran and how long that show sta stayed good. If you, if you haven't had a chance to listen to Jonathan's podcast where he talks about the reinvention of that engine and what they did on season six and seven of Homeland, uh, make sure to listen to it. it. It's a really incredible listen. Um, in addition to his incredible work in television, um, uh, Jonathan is an award-winning playwright um, he started actually uh, as a, uh, a dramaturg. Um, he's collaborated with all kinds of incredible people, um, including Mikhail Baryshnikov, Anna Devere Smith, Dennis O'Hare, uh, 
really incredible, incredible person. We're so, so lucky to have him on our faculty. So give a big welcome to Jonathan. Hello, everyone. I am very, very excited to be here for Festivus this year, and I'm so excited to meet all of you. Thank you for that, Jake. All right. So here's a question for you. Um, when it comes to a film that has a twist, do you give the twist away in the pitch? So, um, okay. So very often when we're talking about a pitch, uh, excuse me, when we're talking about a twist in a, in a feature, um, usually we're talking about something that happens at the end. Not always. There are exceptions, but usually you're talking about something that falls at the end. And what I would suggest is that the first thing that you need to do is you need to learn how to pitch that story without referencing the twist. Um, I think that most of the great successful movies that have great twists at the end of them, you know, I think about um, The Sixth Sense, um, you know, is, is a big one, Fight Club. Um, their core character dramas and the people that we're going to follow throughout uh, are so strongly constructed. Uh, or if it's something where we're going to be following a mystery throughout the, the course of the story, that mystery is so strongly constructed and so propulsive that it can stand without the pitch at the end. Like you can absolutely get through a, a knockout pitch for The Sixth Sense without referencing the fact that Bruce Willis has died at the end. Spoiler alert. Um, so that would that would be my first piece of advice. Um, if you have a project where the twist falls earlier, um, if, you, if you're trying to do something like uh, The Matrix, for example, where the, the twist really is kind of at the end of the first act, uh, and you require that in order to understand the trajectory of the characters and understand the world that they're actually occupying, um, then I think that you're forced to bring it to bear earlier in the pitch. I think it needs to fall in the pitch roughly where it needs to fall in your story. Um, but it always needs to be something that we're led into uh, along the thread of the characters and the progression of their personal arcs through the story before we get to the point of, of our fascination with the plot. Amazing answer. Um, I, I'd love to, to jump in on that because uh, I messed up so many movies early in my career trying to land a twist ending. Um, and what often happens, I've seen so many students make the same mistake, right? You're so busy establishing and laying in and trying to set up that twist that you end up with a really boring movie with a great ending uh, or a really boring pilot with a great ending. Um, and if you're it, it, one of the things I learned is now what I'll do is I will write the pilot where I give away the twist or I'll write the movie where I give away the twist uh, in my early draft. And what that does is it frees me to learn what the movie really is before I start hiding things to manipulate the audience. And a couple of things often happen. Number one, sometimes you realize, holy shit, my twist isn't actually that good. Sometimes you realize if the twist happens early, you realize there's more stuff on the other side of that twist. It's even more unexpected. Um, but even if you have to go back and hide the twist again later, um, by, laying, by, by allowing yourself to really tell the story from the character's point of view, rather than trying to tell it from the audience's point of view in that first draft, you're gonna have so much more compelling stuff on the page. And it's easy then to go up and kind of slice and di dice the way you present something so that the audience can be surprised. Um, but to bring it all the way back to should you pitch that twist? Um, and I 100% agree with Jonathan. Yeah, your pitch has to work without the twist. Um, but one of my guilty pleasures is Project Runway. Um, and at the end of Project Runway, there are always four 
wonderful designers, right, who are competing for three slots at Fashion Week. And there's always one designer who decides not to show their best clothing because they want to wow the judges at Fashion Week. And that's always the designer that doesn't get to go to Fashion Week, right? Um, at the end of the day, the purpose of your pitch is to get the audience, the listener, the producer to say, yes, I want to read this. And if you have to give away your trick ending to do that, you give it away. The real question is, can you land the trick ending in a short pitch? Because sometimes it's actually impossible to land it. You need too much setup to actually land it in the pitch. And so if you can't land it in a short pitch, then sometimes you have to go, okay, you've, you've done Jonathan's amazing pitch. And then you go, you're pitching the sixth sense. Um, and you go, but you know, before he can save this child, he's going to have to realize something completely. Uh, so he's going to have to realize something about himself that he has a secret that he's hiding from himself that he's not even aware of. Right. And you see, I didn't give you the trick ending that he's dead. I gave you a taste of it. And then if you ask me, well, what's the trick ending? Now I just bought myself another three minutes to go back and go, okay, for you to get this, I'm going to have to lay in a bunch of other information. Right. So if you can't land the trick ending, you can tease it and then allow the question to let you have more time to actually deliver it. All right. Awesome. Let's pull up our next, um, our next writer. Alison Green, the American oligarchy. How are you? Wow. <laughs> okay. Great. Um, so um, I actually became very political, like a lot of people back in 2016, when there were some big events going on in the political landscape. I got very involved in activism. I got involved in Twitter. And I also developed um, an investigative um, niche and, and realized I was really good at finding some stories that were hidden. Um, around the time of the 2020 election, everybody was kind of really focused on the presidential election. And I noticed some odd results in the senatorial campaigns in the election results in 2020. Um, I started doing some digging and kind of saw some things that made me ask questions. Um, the tweet went viral at the time and I really started to kind of dig in and do a lot more research and saw, actually there's a lot more to this story. Um, I decided I had so much content that it was really hard to figure out how to lay it all out. And I realized that I kind of had a series on my hand. So my series, um, I kind of took all of the research I did and weaved it into a, a fictional story where um, my I actually have Alexis Allen. Um, she goes out on election day, 2024. She goes out to walk her dog and to vote in the election. And as she walks out, the press are all there and she is mobbed by reporters and an SUV kind of rolls up and the DNC chairman jumps out and says, um, can you come with me? <laughs> and he whisks her away and she says, what's going on? And he says that there has been a um, series of events that has led to the fact that she 
is on the ballot to become the next president of the United States. And um, he needs to speak with her about it. Um, what it winds up is that her activism had been looking into election rigging and that landed her on the radar, radar of some wealthy elites. And these wealthy elites she had believed were actually rigging the elections. They wound up through infighting accidentally rigging the election for her <laughs> and they didn't want to get caught with the rigging so you now have both parties telling her she needs to accept the presidency um and both parties kind of pressuring her to become the next female president of the united states all right give her some love <laughs> all right let's see what people have to say activism developed an investigative niche, um, odd results in senatorial campaign. Uh, it went viral. Um, uh, discovered that you were good at finding hidden things. Yeah. Um, uh, all the president's men, Watergate for the Twitter generation. Uh, uh, You've got me captivated. Uh, uh, okay. Uh, mobbed by reporters. Uh, the conspiracy whisks her away. DNC kidnapping, super intriguing set of 70s paranoia thriller vibes. The DNC chairman come with me and traces if you want to live. Uh, North by Northwest, she's on the ballot. Um, uh, uh, yeah, Debbie says, I remember this project from our class together, Allison. It's such a compelling project, the accidental politician, uh, the wealthy elites, so much more. Definitely read through all these comments. Jonathan, you want to jump in? Absolutely. Uh, first of all, hi, Allison. It is lovely to connect with you. Uh, there, there was so much here that I loved. I was grabbed right away. This is another, um, uh, for me, uh, example of a, a, a title that gripped me right away. Uh, American oligarchy is timeless, it's suggestive, and it pulls me into the headspace uh, for something that could be an investigative journalist story, which it is something that could be um, you know, espionage based, something that's that's very alive in that space. And that's my jam. So I got excited about that. Um, and I, I thought that your personal through line into this and this kind of activist awakening and getting into the, uh, you know, the online investigative journalism and the online sleuthing uh, is tremendously timely. And that's very alive in stories that are in our news cycle. That's very alive in stories that are in our fiction. And uh, I, I think that's a great access and a great entry point. Um, when we get to the point where we're meeting Alexis, uh, I love the setup of this scene. I love the setup of this scene. We're encountering her, and I love that you, ha you have her walking her dog. She's walking her dog, presumably to her polling place. So in my mind, I start to fill out texture around that, right? I start to populate that world, the street, what's outside of her front yard. She lives somewhere presumably in a small enough town where she's walking distance away from her little residential area and wherever she's supposed to go and poll. And I automatically, you know, start affixing things to the dog. You know, I'm, I'm saying like, in my mind, is this, you know, what kind of, is it a medium dog, is it a small dog? Uh, and I'm filling in these textures and you've got me doing this. And before I can um, settle into that scene, uh, you have yanked me into this speeding car uh, with the chairman of the DNC. And I like the, the sort of frantic revelation of this plot. That to me is, is very, um, I, I, don't, I don't know to what degree yet you're going for humor in this. And I'll, I'll talk about that very quickly in a second, but it's compelling to me that we're 
it's like they have to vomit this plot out very quickly because they need this person to comply. Um, I felt like what I was hearing uh, were, were really the opening scenes, really the opening tilt of this story. Um, and it did not give me yet an opportunity. I'm very enticed and I want to learn more about Alexis, about her political thinking, about her level of involvement. Uh, you referenced her having an activist component to her. I want to know more about what that is. Um, but I'm I, really, I'm gripped with this premise. Uh, and what this is, is a fantastic opening to a pitch. And if I'm hearing the pitch, then the things I'm asking you now are, well, I need you to expand upon this. I need you to tell me where this goes. And I need you to help me understand what kind of series this is going to be. What's the engine of this series beyond this day where she becomes president? Are we going to be with her in her administration? What are we following the, the day to day of the show? Thank you. Awesome. <laughs> um, Allison, I want to start off by congratulating you. Um, I saw the earlier version of this pitch, and you did such a great job taking this to the next level and leaning into the thriller genre elements of this piece. Um, your personal story, um, I think this is probably the most effective personal story we've heard so far today, as far as the way the personal story ended up linking up to this story and kind of giving it context and texture. Really effective. Um, now, I did notice Kelly Fenson did ask, is it comedy, right? So that means we still haven't totally nailed it, right? But we're really close. And the reason you're getting the question, Allison, you went 100% thriller, right? All the way through, political thriller, political thriller, political thriller. But the way you pitched us the idea of... Um, of you know that they were so busy in fighting that they accidentally put her on the ballot feels still feels comedy right and so what i would suggest is one of the ways that thrillers tend to work is that um a thriller almost always you're going to see things through the point of view of the main character and you're not going to know the things that she doesn't know right and so i would see what happens if you pitch that makes the same pitch through the point of view of the main character so that you can continue to lean into those thriller elements. Um, with all that said, you know, we've heard a couple of comments about like, this isn't the whole story, this isn't the whole story, this isn't the whole story. Um, but sometimes, sometimes you can, land, if your first act is really working, sometimes you can land a short pitch off the first act, right? If you have like one sentence, you know, and so what proceeds, right, is one of the most complicated political thrillers ever, right, where she has to do X, Y, and Z and somehow save her country without losing her life, right? Or what proceeds is we're going to watch this character get corrupted by the very system, right? Or, you know, if you can kind of give us a taste of it. If your first act is really working, sometimes, not always, you can get away with a first act pitch and then a really great sentence that suggests the propulsion. You just have to be prepared because they're, especially in a format like this, um, but you have to be prepared. If they like it, they're going to go, okay, what happens next? And then you have to have a really great answer to, to that question. While we wait for these last votes to come in, I realized I forgot to tell everybody how you can study with Jonathan. Um, so Jonathan teaches our ProTrack mentorship program. Um, but in the new year, he's going to be offering a workshop, but this is going to be a different workshop. Um, this workshop is going to be run like a real writer's room. Um, it's limited to only eight writers. It's only for TV drama writers. Jonathan is going to play the role of showrunner. You guys are going to play the role of staff writer. 
Um, and you're going to have a real writer's room experience as you de develop your scripts. We have a version of this. Jerry, unfortunately, is sick. We have a version of this for TV comedy writers with Emmy-winning showrunner Jerry Brzezikian. Now we're going to have one for TV drama with Jonathan. Um, that class has not even been announced yet. We don't even have a date for it yet. But if you are interested, we know it's going to sell out right away. So if you're interested, you can direct message James um, and you can apply. Again, it's a, another application only class. Um, beautiful. Um, let's get the last couple votes in and then we're going to close the polls. The poll is closed, Jake. Okay, beautiful. Let's pull up the next writer. Trey Chandler, Judgment Date, Call of Booty. Oh, wow. <laughs> let's do it. Let's go. All right, let's do it. <laughs> All right, so I'll go right into it. Um, so I don't know if anybody else is out there in like the wasteland of modern dating. I was living in New York City for 13 years. And it's like the city where you can be surrounded by so many people, but still feel kind of like disconnected and uh, isolated a little bit. And um, so I have a funny idea in my head, like, hey, I'm going to seek out some human connection and maybe try online dating. So, um, you know, I had some successes and some failures and stuff. And most of all, it's like kind of let myself uh, successes. I did have I kind of self-sabotage a lot and kind of thought I was like, oh, maybe I wasn't really meant to let myself be happy or anything like that. You know, schmaltzy stuff like that. But um, so I got got me kind of thinking, like to even work through this idea. Um, came up with a, with a TV pilot idea about a similar character, has a really dreary Kafka-esque kind of job, uh, pretty isolated, not in touch with everybody, um, pretty much a loner in the city. Uh, the, the only difference is that he's a time traveling super soldier from the future, who's tasked with uh, basically, you know, changing the timeline from the destroyed future that he came from. And, um, so his outlook on life's pretty fatalistic, pretty grim, because he's seen how bad it can get. And, um, you know, he pretty much stays away from people. He has a commander, hard as nails commander, who basically tells him, she's basically saying, like, you know, you can't, you got to do what we tell you to do, go where we tell you to go, fix what we tell you to fix. But you can't talk to anybody. You can't interact with anybody, really. Like, you got to be a ghost, right? You got to kind of stay away. But on one of his missions, he kind of comes across this guy, Provi, and they kind of share a connection. They kind of have like a, a connection and he kind of gets a feeling for like, oh, I like this human connection thing. I like this, this feeling. So uh, I'd like to explore this further. And so the rest of the show kind of basically picks up with him trying to pursue probably keeping his identity a secret, of course, as to not disrupt or destroy the timeline. And, um, you know, while also kind of carrying out missions to, to defeat this enemy faction that wants to keep the future the way it is, uh, trying to keep other super soldiers off of his tail because they're kind of happy with the way it is, you know, they don't want to, uh, they're kind of like, this is kind of like a weird thing to pursue. Also keeping out of this uh, commander's sights. And it's, it's essentially just kind of like, you know, this thing about this kind of like defeating that, that self-defeatist fatalistic kind of thing in your own head that maybe you don't deserve happiness or maybe you don't deserve to have hope. But um, with this quirky kind of like cyborg character at the center of it, who pretty much doesn't really know what anything about the modern day, nor does he know that much about dating, but it's pretty fun to watch him try and fail um, the bunch of sci-fi shenanigans, you know, as it goes on. All right, give him some love. All right, let's see what people connected to. Okay, 
uh, <laughs> call of booty. Yeah. Trey, make sure to say that in your pitch, okay. right? Because the truth is we're going to be sold just from the title. Sometimes your title is all you need to say. Um, I love this already, says Andy, proving my point. Uh, is a spoiler alert. This is a great script. The wasteland of modern dating. Um, uh, love that you immediately brought others into the pitch. Um, Got to seek out some human connection. Um, uh, Self-sabotage. Uh, I wasn't meant to be happy. A uh, loner in the city, Kafka-esque. Uh, the traveling super soldier from the future. Uh, change the timeline. Uh, yeah, uh, there's so much great here. Uh, uh, your ethos came through immediately. You can't learn that. You can't interact with anybody. Yes, right? Once we have that want, right? How the pitch gets so much clearer. Jonathan, go ahead, jump in. I love, okay, I love this. Uh, I love everything about this. Um, yeah, I, I responded to a lot of the same things, Wasteland and Modern Dating. That's universally and immediately relatable to people. Even if you haven't dated in 20 years, you still think that it was a wasteland when you were doing it, because I think the reality is that dating has always for all time been a wasteland. Okay, that's an aside. Um, <laughs> the uh, This notion of self-sabotage, I love that you bring us in and introduce us to this character and this protagonist, and you wait until we've identified with him as an everyman, uh, and even have you as a, as a sort of cipher in our minds before you let us know that this is, is Kyle Reese, you know, that's come back in time to save the human race in the most banal way possible. And I love that you're putting him at these cross purposes where he has to run missions, but he also sort of has to make his rent. So he has to work in the Kafkaesque dead end job. Like this is a, this is a, just a terrific engine. And, uh, you know, something I talk about a lot uh, is that uh, uh, television is gestaltic. And the hardest thing about a pilot is that you have to manage to convey the fusion of what the show is. Um, and, and that's a fusion of tone, of style, of plot, of character, arc, progression, story engine, you know, your, your plot level engine and then your character level engine. And you have to be able to suggest this uh, without anything other than the beginning of your longer story. And you were able to do that very successfully here. So I felt this as a gestalt. Uh, I, I felt this as one clear thing with a clear tone. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm, I love the, uh, the conflict that you are able to bring into it um, in terms of some of these pressures. I, I think that you, one can have a little bit more confidence in this because when you present it, I hear, I hear like kinda a lot you kind of slide sideways up to some of your phrases and then they're great phrases and you land them. And I'm sitting here thinking like, why was he mealy mouthed around that? That's amazing. Uh, I think that uh, you can create a little bit more space out of this, even for a three minute. This is such a successful three minute pitch. This is a terrific three minute pitch, but I think you can create a little bit more space for it, uh, 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 space out of it just by compressing around the edges. And you can use that, I think, to give me some more of your 100 episodes, because this is a story that can actually have 100 episodes in it. And that's like a TV engine idea. So I, I want to hear, you know, the next thing I'm asking you is like, well, what are the missions? What are the problems? What are the dates? This is clearly a person who's on a date and then has to save the future while on the date. You know, I, I want to hear, I, I want you to have a half a dozen of those you know, in your hip pocket, ready to go. And I want you to make sure you tantalize me with at least a few of them. Amazing, amazing. Uh, wow, Jonathan, uh, that's a hard, tough act to follow. It's a hell of a set of notes. Um, so Trey, I have heard this pitch before um, and I only have one note for you. 
and somebody chatted it in. Breathe. Breathe. Um, I heard this pitch before in a completely different way. Um, and both versions are totally effective, but the previous version landed better because you were breathing, right? Because, because you allowed us to feel your confidence in the piece. That is the only thing missing from this. Inside this format, I mean, I love every, I, I feel so much like, it's a great, it's a great pitch. Um, the only thing that I really wanted inside the pitch, I wanted more of the relationship with Proby, right? Um, you know, for everyone, you know, one of the things, the reason the pitch is so successful is Trey did those elements we're talking about, right? We know who the character is. There's already irony because we're seeing Trey and then we find out he's a super soldier, right? Um, so it's amazing to like have a super soldier who feels like Trey, right? We're already, we get, we get who this character is, right? So we know the who. Then we know what the character wants. It got to save the world, right? Um, and then we know the obstacle. He's not allowed to make a connection, right? And suddenly we actually, you could end the pitch. We already know, right? But then you land it. There's Proby, right? And we're, we're it's so, it's such a wonderful feeling. Like there's Proby, right? But I didn't fully get Proby. And like Jonathan said, I wanted to feel the pressure between the mission and Proby. Right and how the two pieces are messing up each other. So that's a that's a small little note. The real note is you pitched this in two literally completely polar opposite ways. Now that I've heard, both pitches land. The only thing you need to do is breathe and remember that you've got this and that this was really good. Okay, give him some love and let's vote. Thank you, Jonathan. Let's give Jonathan a round of applause. Uh, that was amazing. And um, okay, our next mentor, Keaton Lee. Uh, Keaton is another one of my babies. Uh, she came up with Karen uh, through the uh, through the masterclass. Uh, in fact, they've even collaborated together. Um, it's so interesting you, to see Keaton and Karen together because uh, they're so complementary and so different, right? Um, so. Uh, Karen is the person who's going to like break apart structure and make a chart, right? And Keaton is the person who's going to like whisper one thing in your ear and suddenly everything becomes clear, right? Um, Keaton writes the funniest scripts about things that absolutely should not be funny. Um, she has a piece that has gotten so close to production so many times. Um, recently had Margot Robbie attached um, that's called Fool's Day. Um, that's about a bunch of kindergartners who accidentally kill their teacher on uh, April Fool's Day. And it's a heist movie where they have to dispose of the body so that they don't have to deal with their shame. Um, and the piece is a thousand jokes a minute. Like you, you never, outside of Bojack Horseman or Arrested Development, you never see joke density like this. Um, but because it's Keaton, there's also this beautiful little coming of age story woven through it. Um, and it's a really rare ability to be able to make somebody laugh and cry at the same time. Uh, she has another piece called The Drill um, that should not exist and should not work, but it's so freaking brilliant. I pitch it to everybody. Uh, it, is, it is a comedy about a school shooting, and it is so dark, and it is so funny, and it should not work, um, but it does. It manages to make you laugh your ass off, and you're feeling so guilty about laughing 
And as it makes you feel guilty about laughing, it makes you actually look at the horror of school shootings in the way that we're actually processing them. And again, with a beautiful little coming of age story woven through it. Uh, if you're writing something about the occult witches, <laughs> uh, she's your girl. Um, she also has a really beautiful piece about that's a just a character-driven drama about growing up poor in Pittsburgh. Um, and just another writer who can really do it all. So Keaton, I'm so happy to have you here today. Um, let me pull up your question. Okay. What's a good way to end, please? Do you end your pitch with a call for action? Do you think you should use comps in a pitch? For example, my story is X meets Y. How do you end your pitch, Keaton? Okay, I love this question because you should end your pitch with what is most important to you. And a good way to distill what is most important to you about your project is to think of where you came from when you started. Did you set out to write a project about a specific theme and you figured out a vehicle to tell this specific theme? Was it your character who came to you first and you figured out a story and a journey for this specific character because you wanted them to change an arc in a specific way or allow them to refuse to change an arc in a specific way and see their world crumble or blossom around them, right? Sometimes I'll be ending a pitch and I find myself ending, um, ending with the final image, right? Definitely mine your final image, mine your final line of dialogue, mine your ending and end your pitch with that because you want your pitch to feel like your script. So that feeling that you want your audience to walk away with, you want to end your pitch with that. And ideally, you can just sort of give your final beat, right? Give your final beat of your scripts. But I definitely find myself sometimes um, sometimes underlining what that last image is really about, right? I'll give an example of, um, you know, I'll, I'll give the last image and then I'll move into, because what this is really about is this, right? And that's what I wanted to tell the story. That, that was the point of me telling the story the entire time. Uh, and when it comes to using comps, we had a really good example of the best possible thing that could happen with comps earlier with the Handmaiden's Tale Disability Liberation Project happening, right? Because definitely go in with your comps. It can be something you fall back on, right? Like that is something I always do. Jake always really stresses not to memorize your pitch. I do think you should memorize your turns, okay? I think you should memorize your act breaks, memorize your set pieces, memorize the big things. So if you get flustered, like I do, you have something to come back to. Right, you have something where you can go, okay, my, my brain can talk about the characters now, or my brain can go to this really cool moment in the script. Comps are similar. You want to come in, you want your comps to be as recent as possible. This is a mistake I've made many times, and I will share with you. I bring up comps from my childhood. I bring up comps from late 80s, early 90s, and people are like, hey, did that make money in the last five years? Because I don't want to hear it. But you can open with your comps if you need to. You want to. You don't want to give five. But what happened earlier, right, Mark pitched, he gave us that beautiful pitch, and then Mitch was able to tell him his comp. That is what you want the execs to do. Jake taught me this, of course, naturally, right? He said, ideally, you want people to hear your story, and they tell you that it is Mean Girls Meets Die Hard by the end of the, by the end of the time, geez, words are hard today. By the time you are finished speaking, they will give you your comps. Uh, I love that, Keaton. Um, of course, you do want your comps ready, yes. right? So if, they, if they're looking at you, comp, like what? It's the handmaiden's tale for disabilities. Oh, I get it, right? So you want to be ready. Um, and when you're doing comps, no more, don't give more than two, right? If you start to go, it's the handmaid's tale meets Bojack Horseman meets Succession with a little taste of the Goonies, right? We have no idea what the hell the show is, right? Um, the way that comps work is by putting pressure. And, and by the way, a comp doesn't have to be this meets that. The Handmaid's Tale for Disabilities is also a comp. Yes. So uh, what, what a comp is, is just a way of the person instantly kind of wrapping their head about, oh, I get what this is. Um, Mitch, you just quoted and you want to hear what the genre is up top. 
Um, sometimes that's the case, but I only do that when it's ironic, right? Um, so, you know, when I pitch Keaton's piece, The Drill, right, it's a comedy about school shootings, right? Because that's the pitch, right? Um, it's, it, um, in general, if you have to tell them the genre, your pitch isn't working, right? Your pitch should feel like the genre. They should know it's the genre. Although if you are writing a TV series or a feature, it's nice to tell them this is a series, right? This is a series, this is the title. Um, and you should name your title because your title is probably awesome. And if it's not awesome, come up with an awesome title because that's the only pitch everybody will see. All right, uh, Keaton, thank you for that awesome feedback. Let's get the next writer. Bring up the big wheel. You guys, I love the wheel. Big fan of the wheel. Mary Blackford, hail to the, I believe that's going to be the chief. Oh, my. Lightning is struck twice in the same place. <laughs> Hi, Mary. Hi. Well, I'm going to tell you about a project. It's a little bit new to me, but it's kind of old, too. My daughter and I were developing these stories uh, on our car rides into, into town. We live 20 miles out of town, and uh, we had to entertain ourselves somehow. So we would make up lyrics to songs, you know, new lyrics to songs on the radio. And one day uh, she visited a friend who owned a chinchilla and the stories we started telling ourselves were about this chinchilla. And this chinchilla developed in, uh, it, uh, became a law unto herself. Her name is Dachi, capital D-A apostrophe, capital C-H-I, Dachi. And she is a loudmouth, obnoxious, egomaniacal little rodent. And she's still around. She's part of our family. We talk about her a lot. And we're still making stories about her. But uh, the G comes into the story because uh, she's on her way to the Denny's to get a piece of cherry pie, her favorite thing. And the little old man runs his car into the Dutchie doesn't hurt her badly, knocks her out, but he feels so guilty, he takes her home. And she meets uh, three other of his pets. And she decides that this is a pretty good setup. You know, she gets fed, little old man dotes on her, and she's got minions, finally. And uh, the, the first, uh, the, her first friend that she gets into mischief with is Bo. Bo is a beaver duck. He is a platypus. Bo is completely silent, except he says, wow. Everything Bo says is in subtitles. And he's, uh, he's, uh, seems kind of like, a, you know, a straight guy, just kind of wow all the time. But he's, in his subtitles, he talks in about 50 different languages, not just English or Spanish, but Hindi, Mandarin, you know, uh, Tagalog. Uh, then there's Slomo, who is the very slow cousin of very of a very famous um, and very fast hedgehog that you might know about. Slomo is uh, is a favorite butt of of uh, Chi's jokes. <clears throat> okay, but this is how Chi shows her love. She's uh, brassy, you know, harsh tongued, acid tongued. But if you're in her inner circle, you know, she shows her love a little bit like Bianca Del Rio or Joan Rivers or Don Rickles by making fun. And then there's the nervous little dog next door who watches the laundry channel. 
my gosh, three minutes uh, goes real fast. It does. <laughs> Let's give her some love. All right, so let's see what people connected to. <laughs> okay, the car rides with your daughter, uh, the friend who owned a chinchilla, uh, the dachi, loud mo mouth, obnoxious, egomaniacal rodent. Hell yeah, Amanda, right? Uh, you see, we got the who again. It's how much that who helps us. Great. Um, uh, a piece of cherry pie on her way to Denny's. Um, he feels so guilty, he takes her home. The three pets, minions, yes, absolutely. That's the real hook, right? It's right there. Nasty, loudmouth chichilla finally gets her minions, right? That's where the pitch really lives. There's a lot more, um, but we are going to go to Keaton. Keaton, what did you connect to? Okay, Mary, I connected to a ton of this. I found you very charming and fun and your energy really um, positive and comfortable, which made it really easy for me to get into the story. I think opening with a family-friendly anecdote and then moving into a family-friendly story really, really worked, right? And you were doing this thing, you've distilled the hook in each of your characters. That's something really important. That's something we're big on at the studio is distilling and amplifying your hook and leading with it when you're pitching, right? And so Dachi, that she's personal character hook is that she is, you know, both adorable and fluffy and evil and maniacal, right? I love that she's obsessive. I love that she's angry. I'm also wondering, I kind of think it's brilliant, right? Because I know personally, I read a lot of evil maniacal woman characters, women characters who I find very funny and charming, but I get a lot of, um, you know, certain contingents will tell you they are deeply unlikable. And I wonder if we put them into fluffy little animal bodies, if we'll really <laughs> get away with unlikable characters. Um, but so, okay, so you had distilled each character's hook, right? Each, each supporting character, you gave us their hook as well. What I started to notice was that we kind of moved into once that she ended up going home, right, with this moving into this new home, meeting her minions, things were happening to Dutchie instead of Dutchie leading the story, right? She's got these minions. That's a perfect opportunity to say for world domination, right? She finally has her minions. So now she can go after her true want, taking over the entire universe. Oh my God, your slow-mo moment, by the way, killed me. A distant cousin of a very famous hedgehog, <laughs> hedgehog you may or may not have, have heard of and not naming Sonic. Really great. That was really fun. But what I would love to see is um, I would love to hear the story through the perspective of Dutchie pursuing what it is that she wants. And then when you start talking about that want, you can start talking about the tactics that the little creature takes to actually achieve that want. And when you do that, those supporting characters, they become a part of the tactic. They're rolled into the story. So you can give us their quick little hook um, as it relates to their role in the story, to, as it relates to Dutchie's overarching want. Does that make sense? I am also curious, sorry, I can't actually see Mary in my, in my gallery view right now, but I hope that resonated. Um, I am also curious, I did not catch if this was um, a series or a feature, and I really think it could work as both. If this is a series, I feel like the mischief you spoke about, that's kind of going to be the engine, right? Like each each episode is a misadventure, but even even there, I would look for, I would still come back to what is what is the main tangible want the duchy can repeatedly pursue um, because that'll give you some shape for the entire season, right? And if you're doing a feature, then you think of that overarching one and you have her attack it through Jack. Amazing. Um, Keaton, you are a tough act to follow um, because that was, that was, you really got to the heart of it so, so quickly and so efficiently. Um, so Mary, this is fucking adorable and funny. 
Um, and uh, and it's a wonderful world. Um, are, are you seeing this animated? Are you seeing this like live action, like or claymation? Like how are you, how are you seeing this? Uh, it's a thirty minute Adult Swim animated cartoon. And okay. my daughter and I have talked about this so long. We have uh, several dozen episodes outlined, <laughs> if not written. And, yeah. <laughs> okay. I think on this kind of piece, you want to tell us that. Um, I think you, you want to let us know. Um, I got so nervous. We, yeah, <laughs> I got no, nervous. you did great. We, we just want to know how, how to do it. Um, I'm, I'm actually, because I, I honestly, there's very little for me to add beyond what Keaton said. Um, the only little tiny note I have would be... Um, when she's on her way to Denny's, find a way for her to be doing the carry the character trait um, in relation to the the apple pie, so that we can kind of rem the cherry pie, so we can remember who she is. Right? She is not some sweet chinchilla going to going to celebrate with them. Right? She's a nasty, nasty thing. Right? And so, so give us give us that vignette so that we can remember who she is. Um, where I really want to abstract this back to for everyone, right? The purpose of Pitch Festival is, yes, we want to hear these amazing pitches, but the real purpose is to help you all get better at pitching and help you all get better at structure. And so you can see that almost all of the notes always kind of end up boiling down to the same things, right? It, do we know who the who is, right? Do we know what the want is? right? Do we know what the obstacle is? Do we know what the ironic choice is, right? And you saw Keaton lands the end of the pitch just by saying, to take over the world, right? And this is an example of what we were talking about when Jonathan heard that pitch, right? We're like, we really only have the, the inciting incident, maybe, right? But just having that much and to take over the world, we know what the freaking series is. So, um, so if you've got those elements working in your pitch, there's a really good chance that the essence of your pitch is working. That doesn't mean that it can't be made better or developed, but those are the elements that you want to make sure you're nailing in your three minutes generally, right? Um, now, also, this is freaking art, guys, right? So, like, um, prove me wrong. Pitch only the world and make it work, right? Um, you, I don't want to teach you a formula that a pitch has to be this, but this is one of those things that tends to work. Awesome. Let's vote. Um, while the votes are coming in, Jonathan slacked me something really that I think is really wise about comps. So Jonathan, you want us to take a moment while the votes are coming in and tell them that little piece of wisdom about comps? Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, I, I just, uh, something that I learned from my Homeland mentors is that um, you should be careful about the size uh, and about how, how iconic a piece is before you use it in a comp for your own piece. Um, basically, don't liken your thing to the best television ever made, for example. Like it's uh, if you come in and you say, well, it's Breaking Bad meets that's already a signifier to the executives or to the producers or to whomever it is that you're meeting with. Um, you know, there's a there's a chance that it can be perceived as hubris. And you want to avoid that chance. And they're going to think it anyway. Absolutely. Uh, they will think of the iconic things first. So let them think it. And if they feel compelled to say it, just to back up Jake's point, let them be the ones to say it, especially if it's those big things, the wire, the Sopranos, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Beautiful. Thanks, Jonathan. All right. So votes are in. We're going to pull up the next writer. John Sullivan, 10,000 Maniacs. Wow, here I go. 
<laughs> Can you hear me? Yeah. All right, great. Um, okay, this, this is something uh, I just started uh, writing. Um, and I guess I was writing about my own life in a way and kind of creating this uh, character. Um, and the title, I guess, gives it away a little bit. It's about a man who dates um, a woman who she actually is a famous musician. And he, um, you know, he doesn't realize like he's dating a, a famous musician. It's kind of just the whole movie would be like an innocent love story um, of these two, um, you know, interacting. And then at the end, he would realize uh, that he was, you know, dating this famous person. <laughs> so I, I guess like a, a comp would be maybe like uh, there was a movie by Woody Allen, The Celebrity. Um, it's where like, you know, there was a lot of celebrities in the movie and it's about this writer who kind of, uh, you know, he's trying to be, become a celebrity, but in, in a way his wife becomes the celebrity. Um, something like that meets like La La Land, like this, like, uh, you know, this innocent love story about, you know, a musician. Um, they have kind of two different careers and, you know, they end up just not staying together. Um, I, I was also like a graphic designer for the music industry a little bit. I, I worked with Bertelsmann. Um, and this also takes place in the 90s. So, you know, there was, I used to do these ads that were like for Columbia House, <laughs> where it was like, you know, uh, one penny for like eight CDs. <laughs> and I, I called it 10,000 Maniacs because I wanted the woman to be Natalie Merchant. And I guess one of my ex-girlfriends reminds me a little bit of Natalie Merchant the way she's like, kind of like, you know, she's, she doesn't look like your like typical, like rock star. Um, I liked a lot of her characteristics where like her early lyrics, when she used to sing were like, she would just make up lyrics as she went along when, when she sang. And then I also incorporated um, the other character was my mother. And I guess back in the nineties, I was really a 20 year old uh, kind of, you know, in, in this like relationship and you know, I was living at my parents' house. So, you know, I kind of have my mother interacting with these two innocently. And I, I guess I related a lot of the character Natalie Merchant to my mother in a way and kind of um, looking a little bit like my mother, <laughs> kind of her hairstyle and like makeup. Um, and then I, I also incorporated like, you know, like Chris Isaac, um, the, the kind of wicked game uh, music. And I was trying to, you know, incorporate that into the script. Um, and also, you know, during, uh, oh, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> Give him a round of applause, everybody. <laughs> All right. Let's see what people have to say. All right. Uh, uh, great band, great title also. And Dan, <laughs> these titles are catchy as hell. Um, uh, uh, writing about my own life, a man who dates a woman who's a famous musician. Um, uh, Okay, uh, love story, an innocent love story. Uh, yeah, um, compelling title. Um, uh, Trey, he only realizes at the end of the movie. Um, yeah, uh, 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 two different careers. Um, the, mu the music industry ties. Um, the careers take them in two different directions, the 90s. Uh, uh, Great, they don't stay together. It takes place in the 90s. Yeah, there's so much more here. Uh, I want to bounce over to Jonathan. I'm sorry, to, to Keaton. Keaton, what worked? Hey, um, okay, Sean. So what worked, right? 
I loved hearing your passion. I loved hearing how interested in music you are. And that's obviously like an incredibly important thing to you. And that really organically came through for me. I also like the idea of this kind of being, um, it, it feels like it really has the potential to be classic 90s rom-com in a great way. What actually popped up for me was Notting Hill. Have you ever seen that? No. The, uh, the Hugh Grant, Julia Roberts story. I can't remember it super well off the top mm. of my head. I'm not a big rom-com head, but I would recommend checking it out, right? Um, so seeing kind of, also you were really vulnerable about just telling us pieces of your life and people who populate your world that you're willing to uh, let populate the pages of your scripts. So kind of, for me, I love knowing about people. I think that's the writer in me. So hearing these different things about you, about your family, those things do pique my interest. And it makes, it's like a mini hook for me to see how that translates into the scripts. Where I would recommend you start pushing, right? Because you're in early stages of development. That's fine. And letting us know that in this circumstance, in this room, totally fine. You can let us know that. If you were to say, be in a room with someone, right? And you're pitching this idea, or you know, you're in a room with execs in an actual pitch meeting and you're pitching this idea, or even pitching an agent at a bar or something, just don't let on how early you are in stages of development, right? You okay. want to just tell them you are developing a current project. And then when they say, hey, can we get a draft? You say, yeah, of course. I'm just going to do a little polish. I'll get you one in two weeks, right? And then you write your ass off and try and get them the actual draft as soon as you can. So that's just kind of um, something to keep in the back of your mind. But while you are developing this, I want you to think about your hook, right? Because you already have this reveal. You know that this is going to be about kind of an average guy dating a famous musician. I would really love for you to push on that protagonist. You know, who is he? I know he's dating this famous musician who's going to be very similar to Natalie Merchant in a lot of ways. I got a sense that she was maybe going to act as some kind of muse for him. And where I was getting that was when the way that you were kind of speaking about her lyrics and how they move you. I'm curious if that's going to translate into the script at some point, right? But basically, I'm wondering who he is and why him dating, why this specific guy dating a famous musician is the most ironic possible thing that could happen to him. Right. Like, why is it wild that he is the person dating a famous musician? Has music been banned from the house? Right. Did he grow up in a in a musicless home? Is it that kind of thing? Or is it just that he is wildly average? Right. And she's some superstar and he's so out of the music scene, he doesn't even realize who she is. Right? you have a lot of different options. But I would ask myself that. Who is this guy? What is his dominant trait? And why does that dominant trait make him the most ironic possible person to go through this situation? Um, and then you can kind of think about where those supporting characters like the mother, right, where they come into the scripts and how they how they how they help that overall goal. Awesome. Thank you, Keaton. Um, I'm so blessed with the faculty that work for me. Uh, uh, I shouldn't even say work for me, work with me. Uh, this team is just absolutely unbelievable. Um, so, Sean, I I wanted to. You started with such a strong pitch, right? Um, it actually, this is a, a, an interesting comp. Uh, there was a movie in, made in 1997 or six, I think, uh, called Sunday uh, by Jonathan Nossiter. Nobody's seen it. it. It won the Palme d'Or at Cannes and then he pissed off a bunch of people in Hollywood. So no one has seen this movie, but um, it's absolutely beautiful. And it's about a, um, uh, a homeless man who might be a famous director, but I'm pretty sure he's a homeless man. And a... Um, a struggling actress who recognizes him as this famous director. And they have this beautiful, you use the word innocent, uh, one day love story that kind of asks the question like on any given Sunday, could you be anyone that you believed yourself to be? Um, and this this movie almost feels, it, it feels like, like a version of that. And, and so that might be an inspiring movie for you to look at. Um, what I wanted, so, 
there's a value. John, uh, Sean just showed us a different form of pitching, right? Um, so there's a pitch that you make to yourself, right? That isn't actually about convincing anybody else that they should watch your, your, your movie or buy your movie or watch your show or buy. There's a pitch you make to yourself where you go like, why do I care about this? Well, I care about this because Natalie Merchant kind of reminds me of my mom because of my experience in the music industry, right? Um, and, and I really want to validate that, Sean. It's freaking brave to come in front of 150 people and just go like, okay, this isn't fully formed yet, but like, this is why this matters to me, right? And, and the truth is I, I responded to your vulnerability and I wanted to help you. Um, the, that said, um, when, I want you to land that innocent love story, right? And so I want you to just think of what are some of the twists and turns that you need of that love story? Right? What is beautiful about that love story? What is the irony? You know, what, what's the moment where he's mansplaining her about music? Right? Like, like how does that how does that work? Right? When when you don't realize who the person you're dating is, and what's what's her thing? Right? That's made her so humble that that, that she's hidden this from him, or is that her thing? Right? And what happens when the secret comes out, and how does that affect their relationship? Right? And I don't think to pitch this, you need to work out every element of how the structure works. Right? But I would start to think about like, what are those movements that they go through? Right? Together, what's beautiful about not knowing the person you're with, who they are, when you're when you have the innocence of not being connected to their wider identity? Right? And what's what's awful about that? Right? And 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 I think. If you can find some of those movements, you're going to have a really, really beautiful pitch. Um, and then even as I say that, you know, what's the most important pitch? The most important pitch is the one to yourself, right? The most important pitch is the one where you go like, all right, this is what actually matters to me in the piece, right? This is what I have to land. I don't know exactly how I'm going to land it, but this is what I care about. So thank you for making yourself vulnerable. And I'm excited to see how this piece continues to develop. Let's give Sean a round of applause. And let's vote. And while we're voting, I realize I forgot to tell you how you guys can study with Keaton. Um, Keaton teaches in our ProTrack mentorship program. Again, that's the program that pairs you one-on-one -on -one with a professional writer. Keaton will meet with you every week or every other week. She will read every page you write, every draft you complete, and she will mentor you through your entire career as long as as long as you want to stay. She will be there for you. Um, beautiful. Uh, we're at 80%. So let's get the last couple of votes in. Um, while those last couple of votes are coming in, let's give Keaton a round of applause. Thank you for that incredible insight and feedback. Um, Thank you, guys. And we are at our last mentor. Um, so let's go ahead and close the poll. Um, and here is our last mentor. Um, uh, Christian Lybrook is another writer who came up through our program. Um, so uh, fun story about how I met Christian. Um, my, my friend, Philip Gilpin, uh, who runs Catalyst, uh, called me up one day. We used to do these, they'll eventually come back. We, were, we used to do pre-COVID, we used to do screenwriting retreats in Costa Rica. And uh, Philip Gilpin called me up and he said, um, I have this extraordinarily talented writer who just keeps winning everything and he needs your retreat. And I'm calling to ask a personal favor to make it possible for him to come. Um, and so of course I found a way to make it possible for him to come. And I was more than rewarded uh, by the person I met. 
um, uh, Christian is uh, not only a brilliant writer, um, he is the kind of person that uh, people want to fight for. Um, and he's the kind of person who fights for his students. Um, he has a beautiful, beautiful feature film that's a, a, a drama uh, called City of Trees. It's a complicated interpersonal family drama. Um, he also writes um, lots and lots and lots of television, lots of indie film. Um, he's a guy who's managed to build a career while living in Idaho, right? So if you've ever wondered if like, is this possible? Uh, he's a guy who's made it possible. Um, he has produced his own work. He is, works with a lot of indie producers, and it's just been so incredible watching him blossom in his career, but also now watching a whole new generation of writers blossom under his mentorship. So uh, Christian, welcome and thank you for being here. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I feel like I just won like Wheel of Fortune <laughs> or something. Like, um, no, I'm anybody who's been to the Thursday Night Writes that that either I'm with Jay Con or I get to guest host. This is one of my favorite things to do. So just really happy to be here. Well, we're really happy to have you. Um, we're running a little late, um, but uh, you guys are in for two more pitches. Uh, let's hang out. Okay, beautiful. So. Um, Let's spin the wheel. Oh no, I have to ask him a question. Uh, we're gonna ask you a question. Is it okay to DM someone through social media like Facebook, Twitter, or the new Mastodon, et cetera, to pitch or send scripts to them? This is such a great question. Um, and it really ties into a lot of the things that we've been talking about tonight, uh, namely relationships, right? Um, we all work so hard on our scripts, on our pitches, on the pitch decks that we create, all the materials that go around this stuff. It's not good enough just to be a writer anymore. We also have to be a marketing person and a graphic designer and a networker. And um, But deep down, what we really want is we want to connect our stories with other people. And so our instinct is to by hook or by crook, right? We got to put ourselves out there. We got to take some risks. All this stuff is true. Right. But I want to kind of like walk you through a scenario and um, you guys can chat in what, what, what you would think about this scenario. So let's say you're, you're sitting, you're in line at your coffee shop and you step up to the uh, to the barista and you place your order and they give you your cup of coffee. You're just walking out the door. You probably got a million things going on in your life. Right. You're not you know, like this is just a stomp on the way. And just as you're walking out the door, somebody comes up and they're like, hey, Jake. Hey, Keaton. Hey, Jonathan. Whoever, right? Oh, man. And maybe you even slightly know this person. And they're like, oh, my God, it's so good to see you and blah, blah, blah. And you go, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I've got a thing. And they're like, great. I just I just need two minutes of your time. I tell you what, I've got this great insurance policy that I think you would really benefit from. Right. And what are you doing? You're like, I need to like get the hell out of this room and I need to like I need to go live my life. But you're going to be kind. You sort of know this person. Now, let's throw a wrinkle into it. Let's say you're actually looking for insurance. Wow. Like what, what fortuitous timing, except for the fact that you got a life to live. This is probably not the exact time you want this thing to happen. Right. Um, so think about flip the roles here, right? If you're the person on the receiving end of the DM, right? Flip the roles and go, do I want this person to walk up to me when I've just ordered my coffee and I'm walking out the door? Right. The answer is probably, hmm. You're probably not like, yeah, like let's 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 do a deal on some insurance right now, right? So 
you know, like when we start thinking about this stuff, we are trying to create relationships, right? And it's one of the things that I talk to writers a ton about is yes, craft, yes, structure, yes, story, yes, character, yes, dialogue. Um, but at the same time, we need to be thinking about like, where are we headed with this story and how do we build the relationships to get the story in front of people? So what I would tell you is, this time has gone by so fast. Um, there are lots of legal reasons not to do this. The long and short of it is don't send, don't ask somebody if you can send me your script, right? Because there are legal reasons. They are going to probably say, look, I cannot accept unsolicited manuscript, right? And But the big thing is, this is a relationship you're trying to create. You don't want to just go and knock on the door and be like, hey, read my script, right? So. That's the long and the short of it. Boy, that three minutes goes fast. You know what? I'm going to give you another 30 seconds because you were going somewhere so important there. So take another 30 seconds. Help, help them land that. Yeah. So um, I'm not sure exactly, Jake, what you were referring to. But there are a lot of legal reasons. There are a lot of relationship reasons not to do this kind of stuff, right? People, um, they're, they're, like when we try and send a script to somebody, they could be legally liable. Like... So we want to be aware of their situation. We want to be respectful. One of the things that, that we talked about earlier is we come into these things and, and we kind of have this mindset of sort of desperation. We're like, I've got to make this connection work. This is the one that's going to open things up for me. But the, the fact is that you're going to have lots of these opportunities. And what you want to be doing is being a problem solver. You don't want somebody to be solving your problems. Nobody likes it when somebody comes up to them and says, boy, have I got a problem you can solve for me. Right. But if I come into the relationship and I say, oh, Jake, you modeled this. What are you guys looking for? Oh, you are. Hey, I might actually have something that, that would help you. Right. So this is a really delicate dance. And we do want to create these relationships. We want to create them in an organic way. You're not trying to get somebody to read your script. You're just trying to make friends with people. Right. And so when and, and social media is a great place to do that. Right. So use these social media outlets, but play it cool. Right. Um, I've learned this the hard way. You don't walk right up and be like, hey, will you read my script? Because people, they've got their own scripts they're working on. They've got their own families. When we ask, will you read my script? We're saying, will you take time and energy away from the things that are most important to you? Right. And so we just want to be respectful in that process. Yeah. Know who you are. There are some people who can get away with being like, will you read my script? And people say yes to them. Right. And if you're one of those people, Use your superpower, right? Um, you know, I like to ask for mentorship rather than will you read my script, right? Um, at least, especially early in my career, right? Because I found like people were much less likely to say no to mentorship, right? That, uh, you know, if I DM somebody amazing, I DM Christian Lybrook, right? I'm a brand new writer. I DM Christian Library, I go, oh my God, I'm, I'm such a huge fan of your work. You know, I've seen, I listened to your podcast episode with Jake and it blew me away. And this piece of advice has really stuck with me. You know, hey, could I just bend your ear for five minutes? I, I could really use some mentorship, right? There's a much better chance that Christian's going to say yes, right? Whereas if I, Christian, will you read my script and help me sell it? <laughs> Christian's probably just going to ignore that. So I like to ask for mentorship and I like to let the person know why I'm asking them. Again, all pitching is personal. When you ask, you're actually making a pitch, right? And you want to let that person know like, why, why are you asking Christian as opposed to Keaton? Or why are you asking Keaton as opposed to Christian, right? Um, so that that person knows that, that you're not just throwing stuff up against the wall to see if it sticks. Um, yeah, Char Charlie, if you ask for five minutes, at five minutes, you have to go, I used, set your little timer. I use my five minutes. I don't want to abuse your time. Uh, and they will be grateful to you for that, uh, and they will re respect you for that. 
Okay. Um, Mitch, I can't wait to see your screenplay about Pitch Festivus. <laughs> Beautiful. Let's bring up the next writer. Jade, Petra Girls. Can you hear me there? We can. Yes. <laughs> All right. So shall I start? Yes. All right. So um, Petra Girls is quite simply one of the most incredible um, historical events that I ever came across, and it was wiped from history. It's a, an episode that happened in France, and um, even the French people don't know about it um, in general. What's amazing is the scale of it. Uh, in 1871, the whole of Paris burnt to the ground um, and 40,000 people died and uh, another 40,000 people were taken to trial for burning Paris to the ground. And uh, one woman took responsibility for everything um, and said she did it. Uh, her name was Louise Michel. She was an anarchist. Um, she was a school teacher. She was a crazy woman. She used to dress in men's clothing. Um, she used to give away everything she owned and also everything her family and friends owned. So um, she was a poet. She wrote one of the first science fiction novels and she was also deeply committed to revolution. So basically um, my story is about this event. Um, it's currently a series, a TV series. Um, I discovered it when I was researching walking tours of Paris. I'm a dual national Australian French. Um, I was so amazed by this episode. Another thing I haven't mentioned is that when Paris burnt to the ground um, and Louise Michel took responsibility for everything, actually the people who were blamed for Paris burning to the ground was 8,000 poor women who were said to have set fire to Paris with petrol cans. So they were all brought to trial and instead of trying them on the basis of whether they did it or not, they were tried on the basis of their sexual histories. So whether they lived out of marriage with um, men or had had children out of wedlock and that kind of finding was enough to find them guilty. Um, so I've, I found it very fascinating um, this whole concept that for 10 weeks the city of Paris decided that it was going to govern itself. Um, there was a power vacuum so it wasn't revolting uh, against established government. It was revolting at a time when uh, everything was very much in flux. And the people of Paris um, basically said that they wanted a chance to do democracy well. And they were the first socialist government. So um, they brought in these incredible things that we didn't see for, for decades after, for example, equal wages for women and men, um, uh, non-secular education, education for girls as well as boys, capped salaries of public servants. They did all this in 10 weeks, but the government came back and attacked them. And when this happened, the women of Paris were distraught and um, they really wanted to form their own army. So they had to fight not only France, but their husbands to do so. Thank you. Wow. <laughs> Holy cow. Wow. All right. Uh, Let's see what we got here. Ah, so much. Uh, I'm starting in the middle. Gender bender, gender identity. A woman who just uh, deeply committed to revolution. Uh, she was a poet, wrote sci-fi, um, burned to the ground, discovered during the walking tour. 8,000 poor women were accused, hidden from history, set fire with petrol cans, tried on the basis of their sexual histories. Uh, the wrong conviction burned the witches. Uh, uh, Feminist rage, the burned city, uh, the power vacuum. Ten for ten weeks, the city of Paris decided it was going to govern itself. Yeah, 
Wow. All right. Christian, what are your thoughts? Holy cow. Um, these types of stories fascinate me. And Jade, I think you did a, a, a fantastic job of setting up this world. And like the circumstances of this, Paris being burned to the ground, right? And um, all the gender politics that, that come to the surface and the economic inequalities and how this story like comprises so many different angles, right? I just... Like, I'm ready to watch this movie. And and I think, you know, this could be an example, you know, Jake talked about every once in a while, you can get a pitch where you just get through the first act and the, it sells the thing. And this might be one of those instances um, that I was fascinated by, by learning about Louise Michelle um, and kind of like how she got put um, at the center of this, her entire background, what a compelling main character. Um, and this leads into the thing that I wish I could, we, we could have gotten more into is I wanted to hear more about her and what her journey is going to be. Because mm -hmm. you, your setup to her is so both complex but also compelling. Um, the three-minute thing is really hard. Because even when I was trying to get feedback on a question, I thought I was like, oh, no, this is hard. Um, so we could feel it as you were like, well, wait a minute. There's also this thing, and there's also this thing, and there's also this thing. And don't get me wrong, right? I totally get it. I've been in that situation, right? Um, but for me, the spine of this is probably, even though I don't know what her journey is yet and where it's going to end up, my mm -hmm. instinct is that Louise is the person that we want to follow, that I want to know more of. Mm -hmm. And I want to feel in your pitch the beginning, middle, end of her journey. And I think if you can just kind of set it up almost like emulate your three-act structure, if, if you've written that, we teach seven-act structure, but you can use the three-act structure to formulate your pitch and to structure it. And that'll give you kind of like something to move toward as you are moving your way through the pitch. You're going to hit these milestones, right? But really, I just, I'm so fascinated by this. Um, my mom raised me like my first one of my first memories as a kid is uh, marching in the Equal Rights Amendment Parade with my mom. So this kind of story hits home to me. She taught me to um, be a feminist before, you know, like I guess it was still going on. It was 1976. But this my mother would love to see this movie if she were alive today. And I want to see this movie or it's a series. Oh, but this is actually a good point is that as you were describing it, you said it's a series and you see what my brain did. I translated it, I thought, oh, feature, 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 right? So, you know, like these things are hard to do in three minutes, but this is data for you, right? It doesn't make me right or wrong. It just means now you've got information and you can use that on a data point of one, but you can combine it with other data to go, okay, how would I go about kind of reframing this pitch a little bit? So really nice job. Beautiful and incredible feedback, Christian. Thank you. Um, Jay, just to kind of jump in on there. I, I said at the beginning, uh, a couple of pitches ago, someone proved me wrong, right? Uh, and, and Jade just did it. Um, Jade just pitched world. Sure, the world had some characters in it. Um, and every time I thought this story can't get crazier, it got crazier, right? Um, this might've been buried by the music, but the last thing she said was they formed an army, right? And I don't know any of this history. I am totally, totally blown away. Um, so really incredible. Um, there is no way if you pitched me um, and, and I was still a producer, there's no way I'm not reading the script. Um, now, the thing I'm going to be hoping for is I'm going to be hoping that the structure is there, right? I'm going to be hoping that not it's not just the world, it's, it's also the structure. Um, 
I don't know how you could have landed this much information and structure in a three minute pitch, but I want to make sure. Um, but if you get selected in the last three, see if you could do it. Um, uh, I want you to make sure that you have that. So at first I thought this is a feature, not a series. Then as it got crazier and crazier and crazier, I thought this started to think maybe it's a limited series, right? That takes place over the 10 days of self-rule. Right. Um, but the thing that's getting in the way of me seeing as a feature yet, the question you're going to have to answer, or I'm <laughs> just doing what Christian did, right? It's the thing that's getting in the way of me seeing it as a series yet is it, it starts with a fire, right? And it ends with a conviction of 8,000 women and not the one, I think, who said she did it, right? <laughs> Which is freaking fascinating. Right. And in the middle is 10 days of self-rule. Right. And then things closing back up over it. So I see that might be too big for a feature. That might be a limited series. But I'm not sure what the engine is that lets me run season two and season three and season four and season five. So I think you need to think of like, what are the what's the location inside of this series, uh, inside of this story where each each season happens? And how do you make each season feel like the season before, right? Within the historical truth that, that you're that you're telling. Um, that said, this is a quibble. Um, this pitch is going to do what you want it to do. It is going to open the door. Um, and for a three-minute pitch, you did an extraordinary job. Uh, let's give her a round of applause. And let's get the voting up. And we've got Anisha back, so she'll be our final pitch of the evening. All right. Hi. Hello. Hello, Anisha. I, uh, sorry, I was having network issues, but yeah, all <laughs> no now. Problem. you are here now. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I also have not done this pitch in a really long time. And, um, I write about this, like the characters every day almost. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know. You know how we talked about in class, we write eight pages every day and, um, sorry, I see the timer going. Okay. I'll start. Um, so, uh, my, uh, my show is, um, so it's a, you know, TV show, it's a comedy drama and, um, pretty much it's about four incompetent journalists who want to pretty much win the next Pulitzer Prize. And um, they are sorry, Pulitzer. I'm not, I'm still like, not sure how to pronounce it. I've heard different uh, pronunciations and they, the problem is, yeah, they're incompetent. They're not really good at their job. And they work at a company called News Cheap, which is the name of the show. And at News Cheap, they don't really, so they, it's kind of like a BuzzFeed-esque uh, jump, like journalism company. And um, a lot of, millennials are really into bustle and buzzfeed so i thought it would be interesting to um have that set in um news cheaps so since they're so incompetent they have a lot of competitors who are doing really well and um one of the girls who works at so their rival is someone that they end up hating because she like you know craps on them she hates their company so my four characters um they're called Rumi. Astrid, Seth, and Vile, which is like the most random name I know, but um, it's supposed to be kind of like a running gag on the show why his name is so um, weird. And um, so they all hate this girl, Jenna, and they end up seeing, so two of them are going out to lunch, Rumi and Astrid, and they see her um, getting a story that they are kind of interested in and they think that it could help them. And Jenna, um, coincidentally gets hit by a car so they kind of take the chance to steal 
their her story. And um, yeah, so they steal the story, they publish it. But the thing is, they're so incompetent. They so the story is about cockfighting, and they are very they're dumb. They don't know what that means, so they kind of do their own take on it, and the story goes viral, and they end up. Um, getting the publicity that they always wanted and now they are kind of stuck having to write actually good pieces so the thing with the piece that they wrote was it was so ridiculous and absurd and they thought it was like a real thing um or they took their own take on cockfighting whatever that is and um it ended up a lot of people like in the I guess the media thought it was a metaphor for something else and they really liked it so now they have to kind of be more smart and uh deal with this accident so the thing is it was a hit and run so um they kind of ran away and they didn't really help and support Jenna when she should have been helped so now they're stuck with the police and then they're also trying to start and run a successful company sorry oh, that was right. kind of rough I'm so sorry like I was I was like so nervous and I was really anxious but yeah thank you so much for letting me pitch <laughs> give her some love all right let's see what they have to say Incompetent journalists who want to win a Pulitzer Prize. Yeah, we have the want. Um, uh, uh, yeah, a lot of people connected to that. A news chief, love the title. Um, uh, the nemesis, the rivals, uh, Gen Z takes on the millennials. Um, uh, the, the memorable names, uh, they hate Jenna. Uh, uh, they steal a story, their own take on cockfighting. Yeah, you could see. Anisha, that's when you really had us, right? And so one of the valuable things about pitching a lot is to notice those moments where you really have us. Um, Christian, you want to jump in? Yes, please. Um, Anisha, this is amazing. Um, like there's, you know, like when we're pitching, we want the tone of the pitch to match the content of the piece. And you had me laughing, right? You, you, you said that you were nervous. Most of us are nervous when we're pitching, so don't don't feel like you're alone. Um, but you had me laughing. That's really important is to communicate that tone in the pitch. And if you're going to say it's a comedy, I better be laughing during the pitch. And I did. Right. When you said that they ran a story on cockfighting, but they didn't know what it meant. I did, I filled in the rest. Right. You didn't even need to explain it to me. Right. So I just and I loved everything that, that you know Jake had mentioned what everybody else was talking about. It's clear, you know, who are our characters? What are the opposing forces? Who are the antagonists? Where's the tension going to come from? What is their want? All that stuff. The thing that I didn't quite understand was this is is this the entire is this a storyline for season one? Is this cockfighting article or does every episode kind of a new article? So I think there's opportunity to kind of like set up these characters, give us some stuff to laugh about and then say and this and you could even end it with and that's just episode one. Right. But I want to know what what the engine is going to be moving forward and throughout the series. But um, I think, you know, like considering you said, oh, I was nervous and I haven't done this pitch in a while. You had me laughing. You had me reacting. I think of the places you wanted me to. And that's huge. That's huge. So, Thank you. Beautiful. I'm going to jump in on that. Um, so I saw people, a couple of people chat this in. I'm going to say it too. Never apologize. Um, the fact that you've written a screenplay, the fact that you have shown up and made yourself vulnerable to pitch, you never apologize for shit, right? Um, you don't know how to pronounce Pulitzer, either make it a joke or just own it, right? Um, you own it. You've done the work. You're funny. And even, even if there are problems in your script or problems in your pitch, 
own the fact that you showed up to do this. Um, the main place that I really want to push your pitch is there are a lot of things you said that were funny. And then there are a lot of things you said that were hilarious. And watch the room. And I want you to pitch this a hundred more times. And I want you to push the hilarious up and cut the funny out, right? Until you are just making us laugh our ass off the whole damn time. Um, because I have a feeling, Anisha, you're pretty damn funny. Uh, so, so what you're really trying to do, just like you would do in a sitcom, you're trying to increase the joke density. Because at the end of the day, this show needs to be stupid, right? This is not... This is not, um, even though there's a political aspect to it, obviously, right? Uh, this is not the West Wing, right? This, this show, it might be BoJack Horseman, which is stupid and every once in a while makes you cry, right? Um, but it, it's got to live in that ridiculous comedy place. And so the more joke density in your, in your pitch, the more they're going to go, I bet this script is funny, and they're going to want to read it. Um, the, I 100% agree with Christian's note. We need to figure out what the engine is, right? And, and, and we want to explicitly nail that. Anytime you're pitching a pilot, you want to make sure that the engine is clear. Um, how does, what happens in the episodes, right? Um, and uh, I also think the biggest question in my mind, I see how it works with cockfighting, but I'm going, how are we going to dramatize articles, right? How are we going to turn news articles? It, are we playing with the headlines, right? Are we reenacting what happens? I'm, I'm, I'm trying to kind of get my head around how are we going to make this conceptual idea visual without making the audience read? And so um, I bet you have a good answer to that. Um, and I bet that that's connected to the engine of your piece. And so I think those are the things that you want to land um, and make us laugh and you can get away with a lot. So we're going to give a round of applause to Anisha. We're going to give a round of applause to Christian. We're going to give a round of applause to all of the incredible mentors, and we're going to give a round of applause to you. Now, we are running, to say we are running late doesn't even cover how late we're running. So this is what we're going to do. We need you to guys vote. have all voted. Or um, Anisha. Um, this is what we're going to do. You guys have all voted. Um, we are actually going to announce the winners now. Okay. But I am going to invite these. The, who, who, Anisha, yeah. Okay. yeah we have the votes for Anisha. Yeah, oh, we need to vote for Anisha. Yes, let's vote for Anisha. Thank you. All right. So while we are tabulating, my team is going to tabulate the winners. While we're waiting for this, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to invite whoever the final three are to come back to Thursday Night Rights uh, next week and to repitch because uh, I want to hear how you integrate the notes. So if you can't come to Thursday Night Rights, let us know. Um, but I got to give you guys a chance next Thursday, right? So we'll do three pitches. If the three of you can come, that's from seven to 8 PM on next Thursday. Um, that's our free class, by the way, for all of you, every single Thursday night, we believe the screenwriting should be accessible. So you can join us every Thursday night for free, learn from our incredible mentors, do a writing exercise, be part of our community. Um, I got to remind you also, you all get buddy pass again for the next 24 hours. So you need to use the link. To get Buddy Pass, you need to use the link that was posted in the chat. We're going to repost it in the chat so you guys have it. Um, and um, if you bought a class in the last week or so and you didn't get a Buddy Pass because you didn't know about it, just let the team know and they will give you a Buddy Pass. 
Um, so if you just recently bought a class and didn't know that you were going to, we'll be happy to give you a buddy, buddy pass. Um, if you bought one of the future classes, not, we're not going back. <laughs> okay. So, um, uh, okay. Uh, how, how close are we team? Do, do, uh, do you need me to talk a little bit more or, or do we have the votes totaled up? Um, the, do you want to mention the prices and we have the finalists ready as well. Okay, beautiful. So let's announce the the third place prize right now. So um, the third place uh, uh, winner is going to get a free foundation class. Um, they can choose from three classes. Write your screenplay. Um, this is the class uh, with me, uh, where we learn the foundations of seven-act structure and how to build uh, a script organically from the blank page uh, through the final draft. Um, that class includes a one-on-one -on -one consultation with one of the mentors that you met here today. Um, and like all of our classes, it's 100% online, so you can do it from anywhere in the world. Um, Jose, who is the third place winner? And Vitiello. And Vitiello. Okay, beautiful. Congratulations. Give her a round of applause. And you get a free foundation class of your choice. The team will reach out to you, or you can reach out to us at info at writeyourscreenplay.com. Um, and uh, thank you for that awesome pitch. Um, we're going to announce the winner next. Um, so the second place, no, actually, we can announce the second place person. That'll work. Second place. Second place person is going to get two months in my master class. Uh, my masterclass meets one Sunday a month. It's basically my answer to grad school. We spend a full day together. We break down um, a different movie or TV show each week. Um, and each of the classes grows out of a topic that comes out of the people in the room. Uh, we also do some awesome writing exercises in that class. Who is second place? Jade Matron. Jade, congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> Beautiful. And finally, the I'm winner. Sorry. She is our first place. Sorry ah, Jade, yes. you won. <laughs> I'm sorry. We're backwards. Jade won. So, Jade, you're going to get a one on one pitch consultation with me, um, where we're going to work on taking this pitch to the next level. Um, who is the second prize who's going to get two months in the masterclass? Trey Chandler. Trey, Judgment Date, Colin Booty. Let's give him a round of applause. Let's give all the winners a round of applause. Thank you, Let's give everyone who pitched a round of applause. And thank you. Uh, thank you guys. Thank you for joining us. What we're gonna do now, I know it's super late, but anyone who wants to hang out, we're gonna open up some breakout rooms so you guys can get to know each other. So um, get to know each other, have some fun, meet your people. Um, and thank you so much for being a part of our community and sharing this awesome day with us. Have a wonderful, wonderful holiday. And I hope to see you all at Thursday Night Rights and in the new year in our classes. Thanks, everybody.